We've looked at lots and lots of causes. And if we divided them into two classes, I would say there's lifestyle. And those are things that we have quite a bit of control over, such as our smoking, obesity, heavy drinking. The harder question, and I think the more important question, is the role of chemicals in our environment. And I spent much of the past 20 years looking at measured levels of chemicals in the bodies of pregnant women and relating them to how their male offspring developed. But those chemicals are chemicals that are able to alter the body's hormones. So those critical drivers of our reproductive health can be thrown off by chemicals in our everyday products. When you're saying chemicals, you're talking about a particular class of plastics, are you? So there are the phthalates, which I've spent most time studying. Those are chemicals that make plastic soft and flexible. They're not only in plastic, by the way. They're also in our personal care products. They're in fragrances. They're actually in pesticides. But there are other things in plastics. You probably have heard of bisphenol A. The bisphenols make plastic hard. They are hormonally active as well. And then there's other Things in our home, like our cushions and our sofas, are treated with flame retardants that can affect our hormones. And our frying pans are coated with Teflon that can affect our hormones. And are you absolutely confident that you're not just sort of seeing a correlation here, you're seeing a causal link? As far as the phthalates go, yes. We looked at the actual mechanistic action of phthalates in the test tube, and they do have the ability to lower testosterone. That's one thing. Then there are animal studies, and many, many of these, that show that phthalates, when uh, the mother is exposed to these in early pregnancy, then the male offspring is likely to develop this cluster of changes, I would say, which have been termed the phthalate syndrome. Given how prevalent these compounds are in all our lives, are there any countermeasures that we can take? Yes, there are. I think the first thing people want to know is what can they do it, you know, in their daily lives? They could try to swap out plastic in their kitchen. Just go through the kitchen and look at where there are plastics and try, when possible, to replace them with ceramics or glass. Because what happens when plastic comes in contact with food, these chemicals leave the plastic and enter the food. And that's been shown in many, many experiments. You can eat unprocessed food if you can afford it, if you can find it, because the processing before it even gets to your grocery store introduces a lot of these chemicals as well. If these products are as potentially damaging as you're saying, well, not just potentially, if they really are doing what you're saying to the sperm count to the point where you know human reproduction could be threatened, do you think they need to be banned? I think they need to be regulated. Currently, in the U.S. at least, chemicals can be put into products without being tested. In the EU, there is the regulation called REACH, which requires manufacturers to test chemicals before they're put into products. However, that testing, it's uncertain how much it protects us, because if you test one chemical at a time, you're not testing the exposure to which we're exposed, which is many, many chemicals, perhaps up to 100 and where they're not testing very low doses, which are risky, and they're not worrying about what gets into the environment. So the regulations have to be tightened and they have to be applied before chemicals are put into commerce. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, November 18th. 
2021 so I have been told uh, this is our second book study on Shauna Swan PhD uh, her book count down <clears throat> second study session uh, we did not get very far just the first few uh, chapters uh, last week picking up in the middle of chapter three uh, we actually heard from the author Shauna Swan at the beginning that was from her visit to the BBC I just I thought that was significant uh, I guess I'll give two quick reasons why I thought it was significant one uh, that was from spring of this year and she was on the BBC uh, in the midst of COVID-19 and I mean spring everybody in the world was still talking about January 6th and the white supremacist insurrection at that time uh, and you know that's the first few days of uh, the Biden administration as well so all the things that were happening at the beginning of this year Shauna Swan on the BBC across the pond and they had many interviews with her talking about her book around the world second and she talked about the chemicals and we heard about some of that uh, last week during the first session in terms of uh, the impact huge impact that uh, toxins uh, and all these poisons that have been introduced to the food via plastics and plastics and, and toxins chemicals in the air in the water everything that we consume and how that has such a detrimental effect uh, on our health like generational detrimental impact on our health uh, and quality of life uh, and trying to eliminate you even heard when she was talking about food uh, she said hey simple things that you can do go through your kitchen uh, and try to eliminate plasticware uh, I got uh, glassware I know people that have uh, containers for leftover food and such glass you can get glassware that uh, is not super expensive that will last a really long time uh, you can even find sometimes at yard sales and get really high quality uh, glassware that will last you a really long time uh, so that you don't have plastic uh, touching your food she also recommended getting less processed foods meaning getting more whole foods fruits vegetables whole grains nuts seeds all of that as opposed to getting all of that processed food at the grocery store because she said all of that processing that goes on to get it to you in that nice form where you can just go buy it and eat it or pop it in the microwave or whatever else I don't use a microwave um, that that introduces a lot of those chemicals and plastics and uh, things that we want to try to avoid along the way so another ringing endorsement for plant-based whole foods diet does wonders for your health vitality well-being and helping to reduce eliminate some of the chemicals toxins in our diet without further ado again dr francis cress welsing any students of dr welsing her theory of white genetic annihilation dr welsing would have been reading she would have read this book i'm sure she would have read this book and she would have been telling us make sure we read it and keep the ISIS papers in mind as we read. Audio segment number one, Context of White Supremacy, Count Down, Shauna Swan, Ph.D. When time is the enemy. The truth is, age is not on a woman's side when it comes to having or sustaining a healthy pregnancy. As women get older, they tend to experience a negative triple whammy an increase in the risks of three interrelated adverse reproductive outcomes, 
infertility, miscarriage, and chromosomal abnormalities, including trisomy 21, which is the presence of three copies of chromosome 21, also known as Down syndrome. To put this in perspective, consider this. Between the ages of 25 and 35, women have a 25 to 30 percent chance of getting pregnant with well-timed, unprotected sex in any given month, a 10 percent risk of having a miscarriage, and a 1 in 900 chance of having a baby with Down syndrome. By contrast, women who are 40 have a 10 percent chance of getting pregnant with well-timed, unprotected sex in any given month, a 40 percent miscarriage rate, and a 1 in 100 chance of having a baby with Down syndrome. The odds are not in their favor, on multiple fronts. Because the early weeks of pregnancy are when 80% of all miscarriages occur, some women heed the 12-week rule and wait until the second trimester to go public with their news. At that point, they're not completely out of the woods, but the risk of pregnancy loss declines as women enter the second trimester. The exception? The entire risk profile continues to climb along with a woman's age. A substantial portion of women's perceived infertility as they get older is the result of undetected pregnancy loss, meaning a woman loses the embryo before she even realizes she's pregnant. These early losses are largely due to chromosomal abnormalities which are contributed by the man, the woman, or both partners in the fertilized egg. The only way for a woman to find out that she's pregnant is to test her urine for elevated levels of human chorionic gonadotropin, HCG hormone, which can't be detected in urine until six or seven days after conception. However, many women wait until they have missed a period to do a pregnancy test, by which point they may have already lost the pregnancy, especially if they've reached the north side of 40. Perhaps this is one reason why Dr. Juan Balas, an obstetrician-gynecologist at the University of Barcelona in Spain, has suggested that female fertility has a best-before date of 35, while the fertility shelf life for men extends to age 45 to 50, and sometimes beyond. Miscarriage Mysteries even when women of any age do succeed in getting pregnant, their pregnancies seem to be increasingly threatened these days. In recent years, the rate of miscarriages has been on the upswing among women in the United States, regardless of the expectant mother's age. From 1990 to 2011, the risk of miscarriage increased by 1% per year among pregnant women in the United States, according to a 2018 study by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It's worth noting that this is the same rate at which sperm count and overall fertility have declined in Western countries. All of these fertility-related rates are going south at approximately the same pace. The new 1% effect is real and worrisome and has nothing to do with income. Not surprisingly, Many women experience depression and or anxiety after a miscarriage. According to Dr. Domar, the minute a woman realizes she's pregnant, that's a baby to her. She's thinking about names and a nursery. So if a miscarriage occurs, there's a potential for it to be perceived as a death, and the grieving process can be intense. 
Offering a refreshing dose of reality, former First Lady Michelle Obama revealed in her memoir, Becoming, that after she had a miscarriage that was lonely, painful, and demoralizing almost on a cellular level, she and Barack relied on IVF to conceive both Malia and Sasha. As she wrote, fertility is not something you conquer. Women who have miscarried often feel betrayed by their body, having been raised with the notion that the female body is conditioned to produce babies. When a woman's doesn't, there's often a sense of her body being defective in some ways, which can have a profound effect on her self-image, body image, and self-esteem. Notes Sharon Covington, MSW, Director of Psychological Support Services at Shady Grove Fertility. Even those who are fortunate enough to conceive again may be more vulnerable to depression in the month after they give birth to a healthy baby. For those who experience recurrent miscarriages, the emotional effects can be profound and long-lasting. Similarly, ongoing fertility problems can have substantial ripple effects not only on a couple's life together, but also on a woman's state of mind and sexual well-being. After having two miscarriages, Diane, 40, was thrilled when her next pregnancy progressed easily to 16 weeks. Given her age and elevated risk for having a baby with chromosomal abnormalities, including Down syndrome, Diane scheduled an appointment for amniocentesis, a prenatal procedure in which a small amount of amniotic fluid is drawn from the uterus to test for chromosomal conditions and fetal infections. Amniocentesis is routinely done in pregnant women over 35. The doctor performing the procedure had trouble extracting amniotic fluid because Diane's placenta was placed on the front wall of her womb, and he had to reinsert the needle several times to get a proper fluid sample. Diane left the appointment feeling shaken, until she received the news that she was carrying a healthy baby girl. Diane and her husband named her Ella Rose and imagined holding her in a cozy onesie. Diane's two children from a previous marriage did, too. At her next prenatal checkup, her OBGYN couldn't find the baby's heartbeat. A subsequent ultrasound confirmed the devastating news that Ella Rose had died in the womb. Diane had to wait until her body was ready to deliver her deceased baby naturally because of the substantial risk of excessive bleeding if doctors induced labor. It was the longest three weeks of my life, she recalls. Whether the miscarriage was due to Diane's age or the amniocentesis, the procedure carries a 0.1 to 0.3 risk of miscarriage, couldn't be determined, but it was deeply upsetting. I worried that if I couldn't give him a child, it would put my marriage in jeopardy because he really wanted one. Diane says, I felt like I was inadequate. What she didn't know until many years later is that the problem causing her recurrent miscarriages, defined as three or more consecutive pregnancy losses before 20 weeks gestation, could have been her husband's rather than hers. In fact, recent research found that in couples who experience recurrent miscarriages, the men have twice the level of DNA fragmentation in their sperm and four times higher levels of reactive oxygen species in their semen, which can cause DNA damage to sperm, than men whose partners didn't have a history of repeated miscarriages. In couples with recurrent pregnancy loss, 
The men also had reduced sperm motility and morphology compared to their peers. As the semen quality goes down, the risk of miscarriages goes up because of bad sperm, which, as you've read, are increasingly common. And more often than not, it's the woman who bears the brunt of the emotional distress because she's the one carrying the embryo, and the man's role in miscarriages is not acknowledged. It's common practice for women who have had recurrent miscarriages to be sent for reproductive assessments to try to figure out why. The latest findings suggest that their male partner should get checked out, too. Some data also suggest that recurrent pregnancy loss may be on the rise. Between 2003 and 2012, the incidence of recurrent miscarriages increased by 74% among a cohort of 6,852 women ages 18 to 42 in Sweden. That's a rapid increase in the span of just nine years, which is why the researchers speculated that it might be due, at least in part, to environmental factors, though they didn't hazard a guess as to which ones are to blame. False Hope from Famous Baby Bumps The media often report on celebrity moms who have kids while in their 40s, think Rachel Weisz, Janet Jackson, Nicole Kidman, and Halle Berry, and the celebrities act as if it's no big deal, just another blissful day in Hollywood. That's great for them, but it's potentially misleading for ordinary Janes because we seldom hear whether the celebrities had any help in the fertility department. Some famous women have taken fertility drugs, undergone IVF, or used donor eggs. But the backstory isn't always told. Granted, it isn't the public's business. But these omissions can lead younger women to think that they, too, can put off having kids until their 40s. Women significantly overestimate the chance of pregnancy at all ages. A survey of nearly 2,100 women in the United States and Europe revealed that 83% of the U.S. women said they underestimated the amount of time it would take them to get pregnant. Similarly, women of reproductive age know little about the effects of aging on fertility and pregnancy, and many are unfamiliar with the success rates for infertility treatments or the high risk of miscarriage. In a study at Northwestern University, Researchers asked 300 women between the ages of 20 and 50 to estimate the probability of pregnancy through natural conception and with assisted reproductive technology at five different ages, 25, 30, 35, 40, and 45. Age 35 was the tipping point where the women's estimates became significantly off-base. For example, their estimates of a woman's probability of non-medically assisted pregnancy at age 40 was nearly 50% higher than the published research suggests. As environmental factors and advancing age continue to influence a woman's chances of getting pregnant and carrying the baby to term, it's important for women to be realistic about what's possible in this realm. It can be too heartbreaking to simply roll the dice and hope for a win. Being knowledgeable and having sensible expectations can potentially mitigate some of the reproductive challenges women and men are currently facing. Unfortunately, 
The onus may be on women to educate themselves about these issues because even obstetrics and gynecology residents are not well-versed in age-related fertility issues. They tend to either overestimate the age at which female fertility declines and or overestimate the likelihood of success using ART. A study of female graduate students at Duke University found that 70% believe the media gives the impression that motherhood is possible after 40. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it just isn't. In recent years, some younger women have become increasingly aware of this discordant reality, which is why elective human egg freezing is on the rise. It allows women more latitude in deferring motherhood. Egg freezing is a bit like having a reproductive insurance policy. But even here, age continues to matter. The earlier a woman freezes her eggs, the more effective it is. The ideal window is before age 35, when fertility is still near its peak. But many women don't consider the procedure until they're approaching 40 or have even passed that milestone, when the quality of their eggs has already declined. So while there isn't exactly a race to reproduce, there is a time limit on a woman's opportunity to do so or to put her eggs on ice. Regardless of the reason for it, more women have been using assisted reproductive technology in recent years. From 2000 to 2010, there was a nearly 80% increase in egg donation for IVF at fertility centers throughout the United States from 10,801 to 18,306 per year. In 2017, the ART market throughout the world was estimated to be worth $21 billion in U.S. currency, and it's expected to increase 10% annually until 2025. In recent decades, there's even been a trend called the graying of infertility services, whereby increasing numbers of women over 40 are pursuing IVF with the hope that it will help them win their own baby-making challenge. But technology can't solve every woman's fertility problem. As women get older, ART cycles, involving fresh embryos from fresh non-donor eggs, that progress to pregnancy are less likely to result in the birth of a live baby because the percentage of pregnancies that end with miscarriage increases. Even with the brave new world of advanced fertility treatments, including the alphabet soup of ART, IVF, IUI, ICSI, and others, there may be a point at which even science can't compensate for scrambled eggs or damaged fallopian tubes caused by unhealthy lifestyle practices or increasingly present environmental hormonal hijackers or advancing age. What doesn't change with age or lifestyle? the expense and discomfort of fertility treatments. Admittedly, women's reproductive potential is not in as dire straits as depicted in The Handmaid's Tale. Not yet, anyway. But the rising prevalences of early puberty, endometriosis, PCOS, miscarriages, and diminished ovarian reserve are certainly troublesome and possibly ominous for the future. The mounting links between a woman's reproductive health and her overall health risks have even spawned a movement to consider fertility status as the sixth vital sign, 
After all, premature egg loss and early menopause have been tied to an increased risk of developing cardiovascular disease in the future. Strong links have been found between PCOS and an increased risk of getting diabetes and cardiovascular disease. A history of anovulation is associated with an increased risk for uterine cancer, while endometriosis and tubal factor infertility have become red flags for an elevated risk for ovarian cancer. These reproductive disorders, all of which appear to be on the rise, have become forecasts for stormy health problems in the future. 4. Gender Fluidity Beyond Male and Female as the renowned biologist and sex researcher Alfred C. Kinsey wrote in 1948, the living world is a continuum in each and every one of its aspects. The sooner we learn this concerning human sexual behavior, the sooner we shall reach a sound understanding of the realities of sex. Truer words were never written, but the realities of sexual behavior gender expression, and gender identity are becoming increasingly complex. Scientific questions about what makes someone male, female, or non-binary, or straight, gay, bisexual, or asexual, are complex, fraught, and fascinating, and not easy to answer. People have long wondered whether gender identity and sexual orientation are genetically determined or environmentally influenced, whether they are a matter of nature or nurture. In therapy, gay patients almost always have questions about why they're gay. Notes Jack Drescher, M.D., a clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University who served on the American Psychiatric Association's DSM-5 workgroup on sexual and gender identity disorders. Heterosexual patients don't come in with questions about why they're heterosexual. The question of whether there's a gay gene has been hotly debated for decades. The answer is, it's not that simple. As Siddhartha Mukherjee, M.D., writes in The Gene, An Intimate History, After nearly a decade of intensive hunting, what geneticists have found is not a gay gene, but a few gay locations in a chromosomal region. The gay gene might not even be a gene, at least not in the traditional sense. It might be a stretch of DNA that regulates a gene that sits near or influences a gene quite far from it. In other words, it's complicated. But that doesn't mean genetic factors don't play a role in influencing sexual orientation. They undoubtedly do. After its release in 2011, Lady Gaga's song, Born This Way, skyrocketed to the top of the charts and was quickly embraced by people of various sexualities, partly for its promotion of gay rights and cultural acceptance, and partly for its pumping disco-like beat. But some members of LGBTQ, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and questioning or queer communities reject the born-this-way description, in large measure because it doesn't necessarily apply to people whose sexuality and or gender are fluid, a population that continues to grow. According to a 2017 Gallup poll of more than 340,000 adults in the United States, 
The increase was driven largely by millennials born between 1980 and 1999, 8.1% of whom identified as LGBT in 2017, compared to 5.8% who did in 2012. Sexuality versus Gender Identity Just as it's increasingly recognized that sexuality resides on a spectrum, meaning that many people aren't exclusively attracted to one sex or the other, that their orientation exists outside binary categories and is sometimes a moving target, the same can be said for gender. To be clear, gender and sex are not the same, though people often conflate the two concepts. A person's sex is determined by biology, based on the presence of certain chromosomes, hormones, and reproductive organs at birth, whereas gender depends on someone's fundamental inner sense of self, as well as the feelings, behaviors, and attitudes that go along with it. Recently, it has become more widely accepted that with respect to gender identity, considerable variations may exist between the poles of male and female. But some experts take issue with the concept of a gender continuum, pointing out that it doesn't allow for the myriad possibilities in establishing one's personal gender. In her book, Gender Born, Gender Made, Diane Aronsaft, Ph.D., prefers to use the term gender web, in which there are intricate, nuanced pathways in three dimensions, side to side, up and down. Indeed, some transgender people don't experience a consistency of identity in terms of gender, as Jacob Tabaya, a gender nonconforming writer and producer based in Los Angeles, notes in his memoir, Sissy, A Coming of Gender Story. There are many things that I've always known about myself, but my gender just isn't one of them. I didn't know that I was a girl, but I wasn't sure that I wasn't a boy either. Tobiah has come to embrace that my gender is more like an onion, with multiple layers but no distinct core. In general, gender fluidity reflects the sense that one is a blend or mixture of our cultural notions of masculinity and femininity. The extent of this fluidity can vary from one person to another. For some, it's the notion that their gender changes over a life course, for others, it changes more frequently, perhaps daily or from hour to hour, explains Rich Savin-Williams, Ph.D., a professor emeritus of developmental psychology at Cornell University and author of Mostly Straight, Sexual Fluidity Among Men. When people report that they wake up feeling one way or another, or that something happens and they suddenly feel more male or female, it isn't clear what sparks that change, is it something biological, psychological, environmental, or some combination of these influences? While the perception is that the number of people who identify as gender fluid has increased, it's not clear whether this is true or if it's simply that people feel greater permission to be gender fluid now because it's a more recognized construct, Dr. Savin-Williams says. These identity issues aren't always easy for people to reconcile, however. With a condition called gender dysphoria, people experience a powerful sense of distress, feeling that their emotional and psychological identity as male or female is out of sync or disconnected from their assigned biological sex. 
This can begin in early childhood, in which case it's often called early-onset gender dysphoria. For other kids, gender dysphoria can begin around puberty. Some kids who were born female may always have felt that they were born in the wrong gender birthday suit, that they were meant to be boys, whereas others may start to feel this way as they begin to develop breasts and pubic hair and experience other changes associated with puberty. Gender identity and sexual orientation are often confused with each other, but they are quite different. For some people, their gender identity may change, but that doesn't mean the gender they're sexually attracted to shifts, while for others, gender identity and sexual attraction can both fluctuate. Meanwhile, some people who identify as binary, distinctly male or female, could be attracted to the opposite sex or the same sex consistently, or they could be attracted to both sexes, as in bisexual. In a sense, Gender identity and sexual orientation are mix-and-match propositions, with a wide array of possible outcomes that can shift over time. The words that are used to refer to someone's gender are numerous and complex, and the lexicon continues to evolve. I'm not an expert on this, but I am an expert on how sexual and reproductive development can be affected by environmental influences. Here's what I can tell you about that. What lies beneath the gender blur? Among the questions contemplated by scientists and mental health experts regarding gender identity issues are changing social attitudes and greater acceptance of people's right to be who they are, deep down inside, influencing the perceived increase. Are biological factors playing a role? Could it be that unseen chemicals in the environment are affecting the development of human sexuality and gender identity? In a 2019 article in Psychology Today, Robert Hidea, M.D., a clinical professor of psychiatry at the Georgetown University School of Medicine, wrote, It is nothing short of astounding that after hundreds of thousands of years of human history, the fundamental facts of human gender are becoming blurry. There are many reasons for this, but one which I have not seen discussed as a likely cause is the influence of endocrine-disrupting chemicals, EDCs. Many other clinicians and researchers are wondering about this, too. The question of whether chemicals in our midst are affecting gender identity is a bit like the metaphorical elephant in the room, obvious and significant, but uncomfortable and difficult to address. One scientific theory suggests that in utero, exposure to EDCs, particularly phthalates, which can lower a fetus's exposure to testosterone, may play a role. These chemicals have been associated with an increased risk of autism spectrum disorders, ASDs, in males. Interestingly, ASD and gender dysphoria, two seemingly unrelated conditions, occur together more often than expected. Another theory is that EDCs can interfere with complex biochemical pathways in the brain in ways that may affect how a person associates with his or her physiological sex at birth or expresses their gender through behavior, either of which may result in gender dysphoria. We also now know that acetaminophen, Tylenol, can have antiandrogenic, e.g. testosterone-lowering, effects. Developmentally speaking, the default brain is female, 
which means that if an expectant mother is exposed to antiandrogenic chemicals during her pregnancy, her male baby is likely to have a slightly less male-typical brain and male-typical behavior, as we have shown in our studies. Recently, we found that exposure to hormone-mimicking chemicals during pregnancy can blunt some of the brain-related sex differences that are often seen between boys and girls. Normally, at 30 months of age, about twice as many boys as girls are language-delayed, meaning they understand fewer than 50 words. When expectant mothers have a low exposure to an antiandrogenic phthalate called dibutyl phthalate, DBP, or they don't use Tylenol during pregnancy, the gender difference in language delay in their babies is large. By contrast, when pregnant women are exposed to high levels of DBP or Tylenol during pregnancy, there is little difference in language acquisition between boys and girls. Simply put, the language development difference between the genders becomes blurred with these chemical exposures. I suspect many other qualities do too. The truth is, getting to the root of whether EDCs are influencing gender identity is difficult. For one thing, we can't rely on animal studies because while many have shown that exposure to environmental chemicals can alter sexual behavior, leading to same-sex mating, for example, and biology, leading to intersex frogs and fish, neither of these outcomes reflects gender identity. With a few exceptions, such as chimpanzees, elephants, and dolphins, most animals are not self-conscious, and without a sense of themselves as distinct and separate individuals, gender identity is an irrelevant concept. Humans are another story because we are self-aware. Most of us are, anyway. But with humans, it would be nearly impossible, not to mention downright unethical, to perform a randomized, controlled clinical trial in which, say, identical twins, who share nearly the exact same genetic profile, are deliberately exposed to high levels of EDCs during their early years to see what effect this might have on their sexuality and gender identity. Even if it were feasible, the results of such a study wouldn't be informative if the critical period for the development of sexuality and gender identity were during pregnancy, which it likely is since that's when the genitals and brain develop. You'll learn more about this in Chapter 5. Then there's the question of what endpoints should be measured and at what age or ages. Should it be based on brain function, social behavior, self-concept, or something else? The answer is further complicated because surveys often rely on binary definitions, male or female, and the issue of gender identity is highly individual. For these reasons, some researchers are now advocating for the use of scales that measure gradations of femininity and masculinity to assess people's gender identification. When researchers at Stanford University conducted a national survey of more than 1,500 adults about their gender identification, based on their self-perception and the way others view them, they found that fewer than one-third of the respondents rated themselves at the maximum of their sex-typical, the sex they were assigned at birth, identification scale. Here's the real eye-opener. For 76% of the respondents, their gender profile included overlapping characteristics of femininity and masculinity. 
When the respondents were given the opportunity to provide open-ended feedback about their responses, it became clear that they considered a range of factors, including their appearance, personality traits, occupation, and hobbies, when indicating their overall sense of masculinity or femininity. For example, a cisgender man, meaning he was born male and identifies as male, rated himself as a 2 out of 6 on the scale of femininity and a 5 out of 6 on the masculinity spectrum, explaining, I consider myself in the metrosexual sort of group. I'm a male who likes females, who is concerned about his skin, clothes, and looks a bit more than most of my friends. As one of the study authors, Aaliyah Saperstein, Ph.D., an associate professor of sociology at Stanford, later wrote in a 2018 State of the Union paper on gender identification, gender diversity also exists within the categories of woman and man and within the categories of cisgender and transgender. Much like how differences in political affiliation between Democrats and Republicans are cross-cut by ideological positions that range from liberal to conservative, people who identify with the same gender category exhibit variation in their femininity and masculinity, as self-identified and as perceived by others. In other words, most of us reside somewhere between the poles of extreme masculinity and femininity and our exact location can vary on any given day. Between the Gender Lines The question of what makes someone male or female, beyond the basic anatomical differences, still doesn't have a definitive answer, even biologically speaking. Is it the presence of certain reproductive organs and the absence of others? The presence of secondary sex characteristics, such as a deeper voice, more hair, or more muscle mass? Does it have to do with someone's proportion of estrogen and testosterone? While estrogen is typically thought of as a female hormone and testosterone a male hormone, the bodies of both sexes contain these hormones, albeit in different proportions. If a particular woman's body produces more testosterone than those of most females, perhaps because of a genetic anomaly, or if her cells are unusually sensitive to testosterone, she is likely to develop male secondary sex characteristics, such as bigger muscles, more facial and body hair, and perhaps an enlarged clitoris. Over the years, this has been a recurring and thorny issue in elite sports in particular. Some women who are top competitive athletes naturally have higher levels of testosterone as well as greater muscle mass than the average woman does, just as some men have higher levels than others do. But the powers that be in competitive sports have often opted for gender verification testing. The chromosome test, in which cells were taken from an athlete's mouth with a cheek swab and tested for the female typical XX chromosome pattern, was introduced by the International Olympic Committee during the summer of 1968. The chromosome test was considered a vast improvement over previous sex verification practices in which female athletes had to parade naked in front of a panel of physicians and submit to a mandatory genital check or lie on their back with their knees to their chest so the doctors could have a closer look. The tests have always been controversial, 
and some geneticists and endocrinologists weren't fans of the chromosome test because they contended that a person's sex is determined by a confluence of genetic, hormonal, and physiological factors, rather than a single one. It's worth noting that men have never been subjected to such measures to prove or verify their masculinity. But the main point is that considerable variation exists among both men and women when it comes to their anatomy, hormone levels, body composition, and other physiological factors. So one of the underlying concerns with the athletic decisions is, if women who produce extra testosterone naturally are banned from competing in women's athletic events, doesn't that create a slippery slope, potentially opening the doors to prohibiting athletes for other physiological anomalies? From multiple vantage points, this is an extremely tangled issue, involving not simply gender identification, but also human rights, the right to privacy, the right of people to compete athletically as they were born, and others. After all, elite professional and competitive athletes are naturally, perhaps genetically, endowed with attributes that give them a competitive edge. Consider the exceptionally long legs of eight-time Olympic gold medalist Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt, or the incredible wingspan, 80 inches from fingertips to fingertips when his arms are outstretched, of competitive swimmer Michael Phelps, whose 28 medals make him the most successful Olympian of all time. Should people like them be banned from competition because of their natural biological advantages? Should men be disqualified from competition if they have unusually high or low testosterone levels? Where should the gender lines be drawn in competitive sports? These are tricky questions indeed. The Ages of Self-Discovery Anatomy and biology aside, a person's sense of gender identity usually develops in early childhood, often by the age of three. Research has found that babies can distinguish between male and female during their first year of life, but their ability to label and understand gender differences doesn't emerge until sometime between 18 and 24 months. After that, a young child begins to develop concrete associations regarding gender and physical appearances or activities. An interesting case in point. Several years ago, Tracy's three-year-old son, Aiden, asked her to have a baby so he could have a brother. When baby Barry arrived in 2015, Aiden's wish seemed to come true. But shortly before Barry's third birthday, he took a shine to dressing up in mommy's clothes, became obsessed with the color pink, and wanted to play with dolls rather than traditional boy toys. One day, Barry declared to Tracy, I'm a girl like mommy. Barry had considerable anxiety about his anatomy, and when the two would go to the bathroom together, Barry would ask where mommy's penis was. Barry was insistent that I'd lost it and we needed to go find it, recalls Tracy, 34, a graphic designer who works from home. One day, while Tracy was changing him, Barry grabbed his penis and said, No penis! No penis! A display of body loathing that was extremely upsetting to his mother. Shortly after that, Barry insisted on being identified and treated as a girl, dressing only in pink or overtly feminine clothes. 
Barry's parents rolled with these desires and began referring to Barry as she, though they haven't changed her name. Even Aiden introduces Barry as his sister. She is nothing but a little girl, except that everything is completely male from the waist down, Tracy says. Once she started wearing girl clothes, she turned into a different person. Her speech changed and she began talking more. If she's posing for a picture, she'll stick a hip out. When she dances, she moves like a girl and flutters her hands. She became a happier person. No longer socially reserved, Barry, now four, enjoys going to preschool, playing with friends, and having tea parties. We're 100% accepting of her no matter who she is, Tracy says. But this isn't anything I would wish on my child because of the challenges she's likely to encounter in the world. In contrast to Barry's early-onset gender dysphoria, clinicians have recently noted a phenomenon in which teens experience a sudden or rapid onset of gender dysphoria, sometimes referred to as ROGD, for the first time during or after puberty. On the upside, the rise of social media has provided teenagers who are grappling with gender identity or gender dysphoria issues with a way to find kindred spirits and support. The downside? Some experts are concerned that these online influences may stoke the flames of dysphoria for some people. In a controversial 2018 online survey, 256 parents who perceived their kids to show signs of a rapid onset of gender dysphoria were recruited from three websites and invited to share their observations by answering 90 questions. Among the kids in this sample, 83% were born female, 41% came out as non-heterosexual before identifying as a different gender, and 63% had reportedly been diagnosed with at least one mental health condition, such as anxiety, depression, or an eating disorder, or a neurodevelopmental disorder, such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or autism spectrum disorder, before the recognition of their gender dysphoria according to their parents. This study has stirred controversy because parents, not the kids, were asked these questions, also because an element of social contagion could be at play. Yet another aspect that has caused discomfort is the researchers' conclusion that other factors appear to play a contributing role in gender dysphoria, including a mental health condition, a sexual or gender-related trauma, a desire to escape one's emotions and difficult realities, a major family stress such as divorce or the death of a parent, or a high level of parent-child conflict. As R.G. Javilana Restar, a Brown doctoral student and trans advocate, noted in a 2019 critique of this research in The Archives of Sexual Behavior, the majority of methodological and design issues stem from the use of a pathologizing framework and language of pathology to conceive, describe, and theorize the phenomenon as tantamount to both an infectious disease, cluster outbreaks of gender dysphoria, and a disorder, eating disorders and anorexia nervosa. Many transgender activists agree with Restar's perspective. Some believing the survey methodology and analysis further stigmatize the experiences of gender nonconforming youth. Another wrinkle. 
Some prepubescent children who present as transgender will no longer be gender dysphoric by the time they reach adolescence and will later identify as cisgender. This is called desistance, and it's often used as an argument for discouraging social or hormonal transition in these children. It's also a potentially loaded term because in the field of criminology, Desistance means the cessation of offensive or antisocial behavior. Interestingly, those who go on hormone treatment and transition socially are likely to have a higher persistence, or permanence, of their transgender identity, notes Sherry Berenbaum, Ph.D., a professor of psychology and pediatrics at Penn State University. But it isn't clear whether this is because these actions allow kids to be who they really are or push them to essentially pick a lane by assuming a binary identity. It took Ben a long time to come to terms with his gender identity. Born female, he says he always felt different and struggled to fit in. As a child, he enjoyed climbing trees, playing volleyball, and playing with building sets. He had dolls, but he was more interested in taking them apart to see how they worked than in playing with them. At 19, Ben married, and at 25, he and his husband tried to get pregnant, to no avail. The marriage failed, and after the couple divorced, Ben had a series of relationships with men and three short affairs with women. That's when he began going to therapy and eventually opened what he calls the gender can of worms. In an effort to feel more empowered, he took up martial arts and boxing, but nothing helped. Because Ben's periods had always been long and painful, as well as emotionally distressful, the therapist suggested taking a break from menstruation. So Ben began taking Depo Provera, an injection of progesterone every three months, to regulate his periods, but the drug made him feel worse physically. So he began taking a low dose of testosterone to counter the side effects of Depo Provera. The infusion of testosterone was like a warm bath. It felt like this was the right chemical in my body, Ben says. Before that, I felt like I had had estrogen poisoning on the inside. This physical change, along with all the feelings he'd been grappling with, helped Ben realize that he was transgender. He was 39 when he went on testosterone therapy and eventually had his breasts and uterus removed. These days, he identifies as a gay man and is happily married to Ed, who has long lived as a gay man. Now 56, Ben, a counselor and educator in New York City, says, I feel lucky that I made it through this journey and that I'm happy and at peace in my life and my body. The Blurring of Binary Boundaries Defining gender and sexuality is without doubt a complex challenge, with many nuances and facets, some of which are physical. Some researchers are suggesting that, along with the fish, frogs, and reptiles that are being born with ambiguous genitalia, an increasing number of children are being born with intersex variation, including ambiguous genitalia. Use of the term hermaphrodite is perceived as demeaning, which is why intersex was introduced as a replacement. More recently, disorders of sex development, DSD, has become the preferred medical term. 
but reliable statistics on the prevalence of intersex variations are hard to come by, partly because researchers don't always agree on what defines intersex in human beings. The term is generally used to describe a variety of conditions in which someone is born with reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't conform to the usual definitions of male or female. Seems simple enough, right? Not necessarily, because these anomalies can include abnormalities of the external genitals, the internal reproductive organs, a discrepancy between the external genitals and the internal reproductive organs, sex chromosome abnormalities, or other unusual conditions. For example, someone who is born with genitals that seem to be somewhere between the typical male and female anatomy, perhaps an unusually large clitoris, or the absence of a vaginal opening on a girl, or a very small penis or divided scrotum that looks more like labia on a boy, could be considered intersex. The same is true of babies who appear female on the outside, but have primarily male anatomy on the inside, as well as those whose cells vary between XX chromosomes and XY chromosomes. The category also includes those who are born with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, CAH, an inherited disorder that results in low levels of the stress hormone cortisol and high levels of androgens, male hormones, causing masculinization of the genitals in female infants and early puberty in both boys and girls. Some people aren't discovered to have intersex anatomy until they reach puberty or find out that they're infertile. And some people live and die with intersex anatomy without anyone, including themselves, ever knowing, according to the Intersex Society of North America. It's hard enough to define intersex, let alone identify the prevalence of these conditions. Based on the instances when doctors at medical centers deliver a baby with noticeably atypical genitalia, the incidence of intersex babies is estimated to be approximately 1 in 1,500 births. But many other babies are born with subtler sex anatomy variations, which may go undiagnosed. Indeed, Experts at Children's National Health System claim that DSDs of some form affect approximately one in a hundred newborns. At this point, determining how common these conditions are is a bit of a guessing game. Nevertheless, some researchers are wondering if EDCs and other chemicals in the environment could be having an effect on intersexuality of one form or another. After all, Research has found an association between high prenatal exposures to EDCs, for instance, if a parent had occupational exposures to pesticides or phthalates, and a higher risk of external genital malformations in male newborns. And researchers at the University of North Texas have explored the physiological pathways through which EDCs can influence sexual differentiation in humans. Remember, a fetus carrying the Y chromosome becomes a phenotypic male if the testes produce sufficient amounts of androgens at the right time during gestation. If endocrine-disrupting chemicals interfere with this process, the fetus will essentially develop into a female, the default gender, biologically speaking, or develop ambiguous genitalia, that is, have elements of both male and female reproductive organs. 
As the University of North Texas researchers noted, these chemicals can interfere with the complex biochemical pathways of the brain, which could affect the way a person associates with his, her physiological sex or personifies his, her gender behaviorally. From animal studies, we have proof of the principle that hormone exposure in utero affects sex-related physical and neural development. Research has shown, for example, that the sexual behavior of rodents depends on the sex of their immediate neighbors in the womb. A female pup who develops between two male pups in utero receives a small extra dose of testosterone from each of her neighbors. As a result, her genitals are somewhat more masculine, and when she becomes sexually active, she is more likely to mount other females and less likely to be attracted to males. In another study, male monkeys that were exposed to bisphenol A, BPA, in the womb were found to exhibit more female behavior, such as clinging to their mothers and social exploration, after birth. In principle, it doesn't matter where the hormone comes from, whether it's from chemicals or natural hormones, in utero. The same changes in genital development and gender-specific behavior can result. With humans, there are still many unknowns about whether in-utero exposure to certain chemicals can affect people's gender identity as they grow up. But this is what we do know. Prenatal exposure to endocrine-disrupting chemicals seems to affect the way boys play. In one of my studies, we asked moms about how their four- to seven-year-olds played, using a standard play behavior questionnaire. And we found that boys who were exposed in the womb to higher levels of the potent chemical dituethylexyl phthalate, DEHP, which can lower fetal testosterone levels, scored significantly lower on the masculine scale. In other words, they were more likely to play with dolls and less likely to play with trucks and guns. Similarly, a 2014 study from the Netherlands used the same play behavior questionnaire and found that exposure to dioxins and PCBs was associated with more feminine behavior in boys, whereas in girls, exposure to these chemicals was associated with less feminine play behavior. Meanwhile, research involving females who are born with CAH, which results in their being exposed to high levels of androgens in their early years, has found that even though they are raised as girls, they often exhibit some behavior that is more male-typed. They're not as masculine as typical males are, but they are more so than typical females. During free play sessions, girls with CAH, ages 2 and a half to 12, chose to play more with boys' toys, particularly trucks, than girls without CAH, and they showed less interest than girls without CAH in classically girls' toys, such as dolls. They're also slightly more likely to have gender dysphoria or to identify as less female, Dr. Berenbaum says. But the overwhelming majority of girls with CAH identify as girls. So what does this all mean in the context of this book? Simply, that in addition to influencing the physiology of reproductive development, environmental chemicals may be affecting gender identity and sexual preference. These forms of flux aren't inherently good or bad, but they may present a silver lining. With such trends arguably on the rise, 
we, as a society, are gradually becoming more open-minded toward accepting people, however they present and identify in terms of gender. That is inarguably a good thing, as we move toward creating a brave, new, inclusive, non-binary world. WTH Context of White Supremacy Gus T. Renegade First portion of Countdown Shauna Swan uh, We'll pick up We ended uh, So we ended part one Of the book and Chapter four So we'll pick up at the very beginning of part two The sources and Timing of These shifts this is one chapter four, the portion that we just read uh, about gender fluidity beyond male and female. It started with Alfred Kinsey. We've been on the air for 12 plus years. We've talked about Alfred Kinsey a few times. Judith Reisman, very important program. I have to see if I can go back in link to that maybe we'll hear a little snippet of Judith Reisman at the beginning of next week what she had to say about Alfred Kinsey there's a movie or many movies about Alfred Kinsey one is just his last name Kinsey they have a joke about having sex with a horse anywho the number to dial is 720 Seven three hundred, the code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. The email until justice at gmail dot com. I am very glad we're reading this book. Doctor Welsing can't say her name enough. I'm sure she would want us to pay very close attention as we study this text I'm going to read one of the footnotes so this is footnote number one to this chapter specifically she writes gender identity has become so complicated and the potential for social missteps so rife that two professors of sociology and gender studies at the University of California Los Angeles otherwise known as UCLA recently proposed using gender neutral pronouns as the default with the long-term goal of using they them pronouns for everyone but some people prefer what are sometimes called neo pronouns such as they them or they here whether or not you agree with these preferences or suggestions they illustrate just how much the concept of gender is changing in our world socially and linguistically. These days, it's safer to ask people what pronouns they prefer to go by or to simply use the person's name even when referring to that person in the third person. For example, Julian said as opposed to he, she, they, they, you get it thought that was significant uh, the email is until justice at gmail dot com I'll get to 
one of our investors and then we'll get to the phone lines. I'm very glad we're reading this book though. Like, let's see. All right. So he writes in chapter three, number one, first lady, Michelle Obama had a miscarriage relied on in vitro fertilization, in vitro fertilization to conceive Malia and Sasha. Interesting. I was not aware. I think I'd heard that before. I'm not sure we spent too much time chatting about it. Number two, egg freezing is a bit like having a reproductive insurance policy. This process seems expensive and fraught with lots of potential abuse. I have read about a lot of cases in which eggs were mixed up and infertility male doctors who use their own sperm to fertilize eggs instead of the spanked sperm. I've heard lots of, you know, same typical reports of fraud and abuse that you would typically hear and lying about where they got the samples from and, you know, that sort of thing. You can expect that in the system of white supremacy and the expense of it all. I think I talked about that last week where I said, hey, uh, there may be a few non-white people who have access to these sort of services, Michelle Obama. But I mean, hey, you got to be the first lady of the United States in order to be a non-white person who can get access to these type of services. Like, wow, that's saying something. I'm not saying that she's the only person, but I said it's probably going to be limited. It's not going to be a whole lot of, you know, black moms in New Orleans who are going to have easy access to in vitro fertilization or egg freezing unless I've been misinformed. He continues, chapter four, some members of the LGBTQ communities reject born this way description in large measure because it doesn't necessarily apply to people whose sexuality and or gender are fluid, a population that continues to grow. Gender fluid seems like such a vague term that it would be hard to determine the actual numbers. I think that's the point. And I think she's, you know, even said that explicitly that, you know, it's difficult to determine because it's difficult to determine what we mean and how much variance has to be uh, prevalent before we say someone is intersex so-called and how a person identifies might change moment to moment. So I think, yeah, she, she would acknowledge that it is hard to get an accurate count on how many people we're even talking about here. Number two, to be clear, gender and sex are not the same. A person's sex is determined by biology based on the presence of certain chromosomes, hormones, reproductive organs at birth. Gender depends on someone's fundamental inner sense of self as well as the feelings, behaviors, and attitudes that go along with it. I very recently learned that the philosopher, intellectual, and suspected female racist suspect Simone de Beauvier is credited with first separating sex from gender in her essay, The Second Sex, 1949, and is apparently often referenced. Exemplifies the power of white women and how the author's definition of gender identification in some respects reminds me of Mr. Fuller's definition of religion, a deeply held belief backed up by action. It's all very confusing to me. Important. 
Number three, the fundamental facts of human gender are becoming very blurry. There may be, that's confusing too, see, vague. There may be reasons for this, but one which I have not seen discussed as a likely cause is the influence of endocrine disrupting chemicals, EDCs. EDC seems like a euphemism for environmental poisoning. Keeping it real, why pussyfoot about things? Number four, uh, blah, blah, blah. These chemicals have been associated with an increased risk autism spectrum disorder, ASDs, ASD and gender dysphoria to seemingly unrelated conditions occur together more often than expected. Further evidence that this is not a choice, but the result of environmental poisoning so I'm not going to say EDCs endocrine disrupting chemicals they're poisoning us environmental poisoning number five so what does all this mean in the context of this book I, I think I did highlight that just because she said context right there simply that in addition to influencing the physiology of reproductive development environmental chemicals may be affecting gender identity and sexual preference they may present a silver lining open-minded world accepting creating a brave new inclusive non-binary world the message I am getting from this book thus far is that so-called gender fluidity and these other disorders have a scientific explanation and are not just a feeling or belief that is important uh, let's see oh this is the next portion alright we'll get to that later uh, I highlighted some of those portions as well but yeah we'll get to that when I get to my notes as well number again is 720-716-7300 the code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh, you can listen in on tune in I included the link uh, in the description I know some folks said they were having difficulty uh, finding the play button at black talk radio to listen right there tune in always works as well right there play button is right in the middle of the screen cannot miss it uh, you can use the uh, shortened address tiny t-i-n-y dot c-c forward slash r-w-s-w-j it will take you right to the page press play you can listen to the live stream online uh, let's see uh, retired firefighter in Florida uh, do you have commentary on the first portion of what we heard Greetings, greetings. Uh, yes, the only thing I can think of is uh, white people uh, challenging biology. Uh, from my understanding, sex is the second most uh, influence 
amongst people on the planet. That and the combination of racist white supremacy uh, is a potential potent uh, uh, situation against uh, countering the global system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, designed to be confusing, to designed also to uh, uh, to have confusion in the environment, primarily with that being bestowed mainly on non-white people. Uh, the confusion uh, and the confusion being controlled by the white supremacists with all of these made up terms uh, to associate with the uh, practice, the practices that I'm hearing. Um, I would say potentially it's a it's it's a very uh very uh hard uh it's gonna be a very challenging uh uh process to uh for non white people to over to overcome uh we we're, we're really gonna have to uh engage into counter racist activities to be able to effectively one day uh deal with uh race of white supremacy with the activities that uh white people have been doing over just my brief lifetime which is 60, 63 years i mean some of this stuff if if it was being said back in 1957 the year i was born even white people would think it was strange uh and so you know 63 years is not that 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 long and all of a sudden, all of these, all of this that you're hearing in this text uh, is uh, is amazing. It's amazing in a negative way. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, you know, I mean, you can't even you can't even identify people now as a he or a she. <laughs> you would have a problem by doing that in a lot of cases now. All of a sudden. And, you know, with children, uh, which is the best specimen to deal with, deal with as far as a, a process is to deal with the children because there's less resistance. And you have them, the white supremacists have them uh, at least from Monday to Friday, from 8 to 3.30 on a daily basis. You know, so uh, it can easily in that in that realm, uh, the culture can can actually have a strong foundation, and that's all I have right now, based on what my thoughts are as I was listening to the uh, the text. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, it is uh, amazing but not in a whoopee let us celebrate type of amazing like not at all 
Um, and you might get in trouble for calling someone he or she. Um, let's see. One of the things that jumped out at me immediately, repeatedly in this week's section and even last week, the first portion they were talking about the age of females in particular and how the older you get might be more problems with pregnancy that stood out to me. One, my prenatal yogurt instructor, she used to talk about all the time that there was so much uh, propaganda is what she would say, uh, insisting that, you know, if you are over 35 or even 35 and up as a female, oh, my goodness, it's going to be terrible. And your baby's going to have all these health problems and everything. She would emphasize all the time. If you don't have any health problems, if you are healthy, you take care of yourself, you eat well, you don't have any underlying health conditions, you should be able to give birth in a very healthy manner and produce a healthy child. That's not a guarantee. It's just saying if you are 38, 39, 40, and she was not just a yoga instructor. She was a registered nurse and had been for decades uh, and a midwife. Uh, she said, uh, you know, you can be 39, 40, whatever, as long as you don't have any health problems. But she would add herself repeatedly. The caveat is that in this society with environmental poisoning and white supremacy racism, Many, many people do not get to 35, 25 even, but they don't get to 35, 40 without any underlying health conditions. And many people who get there are not healthy. So, but if you are healthy, should be good. Uh, but anyway, she says uh, she was talking about for females that it seems like there is a best before 35 date in terms of fertility. And I thought, Wow. We're reading this book. I said repeatedly, we should be thinking of Dr. Frances Cress Welsing. I know she would have read this book, been aware of it. She used to say no children before the age for females, no children before the age of 30, unless my error, my uh, memory's bad for males, not before the age of 35. Now the book said for males, you have a longer window uh, for fertility. Same thing provided you're taking care of yourself, eating as healthy as you can get away from those plastics and everything, no smoking, alcohol, all the rest. But for females, if it's best before 35, that means a five year window. We're talking like if you really, is she saying, or freezing your eggs, if you have the resources, freezing the eggs, five year window of fertility, like, Hmm. I don't know. I'm not a female, but that would be something to think about. I would think, uh, let's see. She talked about the new 1% effect being the each year from 1990 to 2011, the mother's risk for a miscarriage increased by 1% among all pregnant women in the U.S. And this is at the same rate of fertility rates falling, saying that that might have some sort of chemical correlation, maybe environmental poisoning. Uh, let's see. You already talked about Michelle Obama. That's why I said it's, hey, I don't think most of us are going to have the same sort of health care plan as Michelle Obama. They didn't include also racism, white supremacy, having a soon to be president black male and living under the threat of death for more than eight years. How does that impact 
fertility and health. Next. I thought it was important as well uh, in talking about miscarriages that men have twice the level of DNA fragmentation in their sperm, four times higher levels of reactive oxygen species in their semen uh, for females who experience miscarriages. So again, that it's not just one person uh, who might have some sort of health uh, problem uh, that could produce a miscarriage or a problem with producing a healthy child. Uh, and keep saying that this, that's why I said like, Hey, there are lots of things to talk about before conception, making sure that everybody is doing as much as they can to be healthy, eating healthy, not consuming alcohol, not smoking, you know, trying as best you can getting rid of toxins in the environment as best you can. Lots for both parties to consider. Uh, let's see. So we've had lots of movie references, uh, we had Woody Allen last week, Monty Python. This week we got Nicole Kidman. She was just mentioned uh, when we had Gail Lukasik on the program on Tuesday. Nicole Kidman uh, stars uh, aside Anthony Hopkins in The Human Stain, uh, if you want to check that out. Uh, and Halle Berry, uh, I thought of Monster's Ball, even though she does have a parent. She's probably been in a passing movie a movie about being so-called passing as a white person. So-called, I just have to look at her film bio, but the film I thought of was monsters ball. Cause we were just talking about the black male, uh, Kanji Calhoun senior, I believe is his name who played her son in monsters ball, who just died, uh, recently uh, at the age of 30. That's what I thought about with her. But anyway, uh, let's see. And I do remember, I think with Halle Berry, her talking about some of the resources that she had access to. Uh, that's why all of these folks were mentioned being celebrity moms who had pregnancies later in life uh, after 35 uh, and probably some of the resources that they had. Uh, even one of those resources being healthy foods. Uh, you can really go out and splurge and get organic everything, fresh produce and, you know, all the rest of it. Get the super expensive water filter, or have a whole bathtub or have bathtubs full of Fiji water and all the rest of it, right? Uh, let's see. When she talked about the gray, see, I feel like one thing when she talks about the increase in all of these reproductive technology uh, centers and what have you and uh, freezing eggs I would, I think it's, it, it should be state like, yes. Okay. I'm sure Michelle Obama, whatever resources she got, Halle Berry, Janet Jackson. That's great. It is a disproportionate number of white women who are utilizing these services. Uh, and even when you get into the graying of fertility services, where older, it's older white women who are going to have access to these type of services, the expense of all of it in their neighborhoods and, and all the rest of it, where that's who they're looking to, uh, to see if they can have these white babies, even though they might be, uh, well down the road on their bio, uh, biological clock. Uh, let's see. Okay. So that's, I think all the, yes, that's all my notes for chapter three for chapter four. Woo. Now I really had to put my guard up. Now some books, uh, just little things. If you don't know who Alfred Kinsey is, hey, you're just reading it. She's just quoting some white dude who, you know, 
The living world is a continuum in each and every one of its aspects. The sooner we learn this concerning human sexual behavior, the sooner we shall reach a sound understanding of the realities of sex. That doesn't sound incriminating, ominous, right? If you know who Alfred Kinsey is, oh, sex with a horse, anti-sex, raping children, like all kinds of sexual deviance. And he played such a huge role in what they call the sexual revolution in the 1960s, even though he had been working well before that. But I mean, there's so much literature on this guy and I particularly with everything around me too and, and all, I don't know uh, how people would think about Alfred C. Kinsey's work. If everything was just examined, um, yeah, you have to go at Judith Reisman. You have to go back to the archives and check out Alfred Kinsey. But that, at least for me, knowing some information about him, like, ooh, going to have to have my guards up a little bit, especially in a chapter that's titled Gender Fluidity Beyond Male and Female. So with my guard up, I took notes. Let's see. Where she says sex is determined by biology based on the presence of certain chromosomes, hormones, and reproductive organs at birth. I've spoken with biology students, okay? Uh, folks who, you know, are in college, med school students, uh, where they've said nearly unanimously when we're talking about sex, it's pretty simple. Across the spectrum, whether it's frogs, horses, people, genitalia pretty simple the pattern seems pretty overwhelming and male female child production all of that like seems pretty standard not that confusing that was what our investor wrote in confusing nothing too confusing about all of that now we get off into the gender then it's hey now we got this continuum and different variables that are influenced by all these different components of culture and self-concept and all the rest of it. Degenderization, Mr. Fuller's concept, really confuse and disrespect the notion that there is a, such a thing as a male and that there is a, such a thing as a female to say that, oh, yeah, that's, you know, we're way beyond that. And we have lots of other different sex categories and gender ca uh, classifications. Confusion. That was what our, our uh, person who wrote in. That's what he said. Uh, let's see. And the confusion. So then they quote, they say, there are many things that I've always known about myself, but my gender just isn't one of them. I didn't know that I was a girl, but I wasn't sure that I wasn't a boy either. Tobiah has come to embrace that my gender is more like an onion. And I said, now, I talk about metaphors all the time. So now we're quoting Shrek to talk about gender confusion. And I've said consistently those uh, Disney films and anime that tends to have. Uh, I think people were just talking about Luca, right? That has lots of incorrect sexual messaging and all the rest in addition to the environment or it's there are many layers of environmental poisoning. The chemicals and endocrine disruptors, that's one. Shrek, Luca, all of the content on television, that's another. Messaging about sexual confusion, contempt for gender, lots of different ways that you have that poisoning. But I mean, the metaphors right there, that's a famous one from Shrek. You know, 
layers like an onion. That's my sexual uh, gender, too. It's just layers with no core. I just don't know what I am. Uh, Let's see. When she says cultural notions of masculinity and femininity, the culture worldwide is the system of white supremacy, which is rife with all sorts of sexual confusion, anti-sex, environmental poisoning of many different types. Uh, Let's see. She writes with a condition called gender dysphoria. People experience a powerful sense of distress, feeling that their emotional and uh, psychological identity as male or female is out of sync or disconnected from their assigned biological sex. Uh, I think it's it struck me one as significant to have individuals who have some sort of disorder who should not be mistreated. Not saying that at all, but who have some sort of disorder these individuals are being compared to victims of racism, white supremacy that happens, although it's not happening explicitly at this point in this book that happens so frequently. Uh, I'm not saying that anybody should be mistreated, but if they have some sort of disorder, why are they being compared to people who are perfectly healthy, who individuals classified as white are just choosing to mistreat Two, I also think If these individuals have some sort of disorder or confusion about their genitalia, I'm not sure that that should be normalized. Like I said, I don't think anybody should be mistreated. But I mean, if this is a disorder or at minimum some form of confusion that could have lots of different roots, environmental toxins and all the rest, I'm not sure that that should be normalized, meaning where we have films now and encouraged promoted this as a a lifestyle i'm not sure that that's acceptable especially if this is you know the result of us being poisoned like whoa how about let's clean up the environment maybe we'll have a decrease in this behavior let's see and again i felt that creeping i said that uh last week i'd have to go back to get the exact point in the text but she says what lies beneath the gender blur confusion among the questions contemplated by scientists and mental health experts regarding gender identity issues are changing social attitudes and greater acceptance of people's right to be who they are deep down inside influenced by the perceived increase are biological factors playing a role could it be that unseen chemicals in the environment are affecting the development of human sexuality and gender identity? I felt like she had to like really creep into it because like I said last week, you can't offend anyone and it can't seem like you're making any sort of value judgment or criticizing because they'll name call you. And, oh my goodness, you're a homophobe and a transphobe and all the rest of it. And you're just like Hitler and a racist and all of that. It can't just be, wait a minute. Maybe this doesn't have to do with, you know, a choice. This doesn't have anything to do with anyone should be mistreated. This should be understood as a response to environmental poisoning. This is a response to toxins that have been introduced into our environment. Maybe that's the way it should be understood. Not like I said, these people shouldn't be mistreated. They're victims. Well, potentially, even if they're born that way, fine. But I mean, hey, if the environment has been disrupted this much even as she said other species are showing some of these behaviors that's something to think about greatly 
not with any pussyfooting either because I mean sometimes she's speaking pretty definitively about hey the research has shown this in the lab pretty conclusively I highlighted some of that we can go as we go uh, I'll note them as we roll uh, let's see she said it's obvious and significant but uncomfortable and difficult to address one scientific theory suggests that in utero exposure to endocrine uh, endocrine uh, disruptors environmental poisons endocrine disrupting chemicals environmental poisons particularly uh, phthalates which can lower a fetus's exposure to testosterone may play a role these chemicals have been associated with an increased risk of autism spectrum disorders in males and she talked about how there was an unusual correlation between these autism spectrum disorders and some of these gender dysphoria gender confusion why is this obvious significant and uncomfortable and difficult to address why would that be if this is you know the result of poisons in the environment why can't that just be studied and then uh, take steps to regulate and or ban these chemicals why would it be obvious significant difficult even individuals who are all about LGBT politics and rights if this is the result of poisoning and what have you well then that's a double whammy then we definitely want to stop that right no value judgment about anything else you can still have all the parades in fact but that should be included stop poisoning us put that at the front of the parade unless I've been misinformed about something uh, let's see oh my god just continued all that took so many I think I'm so glad we're reading this she says we 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 also now know that acetaminophen Tylenol can have anti-androgenic for example test, uh, testosterone lowering effects developmentally speaking the default brain is female which means that if an expectant mother is exposed to an anti-androgenic chemicals during her pregnancy her male baby is likely to have a slightly less male typical brain and male typical behavior as we have shown in our studies now again this is not anything about you know if someone is uh, if you have someone who was born the genitalia of a male and they say that they're female they enjoy dolls or whatever it is it's not saying that that person should be mistreated ridiculed anything it's just saying hey it looks like there's lab results that show that certain chemicals can cause some of these behaviors and like I said some of the times she's talking definitively she didn't say well we we kind of halfway might think this could be she didn't say that she said we also now know Tylenol this isn't even you know car smoke or you know uh, round off Roundup, excuse me, or any of the other chemicals that we hear about on a pretty regular basis. Tylenol, something that had been advised, right? Recommended for years. Take one Tylenol a day, they said, right? Lower your blood pressure, some other nonsense. And now as ooh, this might be causing some of the uh, effeminate behaviors. Lots of environmental poisons. Uh, let's see, continuing... 
For one thing, we can't rely on animal studies because while many have shown that exposure to environmental chemicals can alter sexual behavior, leading to same-sex mating, for example, and biology, leading to intersex frogs and fish. Now that alone gave me pause. Like, what? What? There are chemicals that you can dump into the water and have the fish and frogs mating where they are that confused like what in the world I don't remember discussing any of that when we were in school like at any level uh, kindergarten college maybe I didn't take the correct classes my bad I should have looked at the directory better went to better schools you know I don't know um but I mean, that would have had my attention. I don't think I would have been bored. And oh my God, let me get on my phone, text him. I would have had, in fact, if I had been on my phone, like, oh my God, I cannot believe what we are talking about in biology class today. They have got the fish humping a dolphin, I mean, a frog humping a dolphin. What it's like, undivided attention. And especially you tell me some craziness like this is the result of Tylenol or poisons or whatever. Like, oh, my God, I'm going home and throwing out the entire medicine cabinet like and paying attention to everything in biology for the next month. Maybe I'm ignorant. Uh, Let's see. White people study everything in the very same sentence or right after it, uh, she says, with few exceptions, such as chimpanzees, elephants and dolphins. Most animals are not self-conscious. I was like, wow, what are the tests that they've done on, you know, dolphins, chimps to discover that, oh, they're self-aware? Like, what does that test look like? White people study everything. Grain of sand, semen, chimps, niggers, all same thing. Let's see. Next. Okay, now this is another one. I talk about metaphors and comparisons all the time. Uh, when she begins talking about some of the measures with regards to athletic competitions, uh, the Olympics and such, where uh, they were doing tests uh, for how much uh, testosterone some of the athletes, especially female athletes, had. Uh, now, that is certainly one that we could talk about for a long time because that's been used where they had some uh, athletes who were classified as black, female, many of them from the continent, where they said, oh, no, 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 you're too masculine. You know, we don't know if you're feminine enough to compete where they were totally female had not had any sort of surgeries changes none of that female uh, and they were doing all these tests to say that they were uh, too masculine had too much testosterone and all the rest of it Uh, and then at the other side you got individuals who had had sex changes all the rest of it where they were born male had different sex changes had been taking you know hormone therapy and all the rest of it now they want to go compete in like female boxing where they still got all this muscle mass and everything from being physiologically male but now they say they're female and they want to go compete and knock everybody out so I mean yeah it's lots to to process excuse me Uh, lots to process but she says 
considered the exceptionally long legs of eight-time Olympic gold medalist Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt with the incredible wingspan 80 inches from fingertips to fingertips when his arms are outstretched of competitive swimmer Michael Phelps, whose 28 medals make him the most successful Olympian of all time. Should people like them be banned from competition because of their natural biological advantages? Should men be disqualified from competition if they have unusually high or low testosterone levels? Where should the gender lines be drawn in competitive sports? Now, in my view, this is not an equal comparison uh, in terms of someone being born slightly taller, Usain Bolt, or even Michael Phelps, slightly taller. I suspect he has longer wingspan, a little bit taller, a little longer arms, uh, which can be helpful in a sport. Some people are born where they can jump a little bit higher. That is substantially different. Like I said, we're talking about someone who, now how did you get to this elevated level of testosterone? If you were just born that way, that's totally different. And like I said, I've seen where that's been used, in my view, to mistreat some black female athletes, competitors. If we're talking about this is the result of some sort of surgery and hormone therapy and treatments and all the rest of it, like, hmm, that is not Usain Bolt. That is not Michael Phelps. That is totally different. And yes, I would have some super scrutiny uh, about all of that. That's why I said it would be layered uh, in terms of the type of competition that we're having. Uh, let's see. Like that onion. Um, early onset gender dysphoria. I think that was one uh, that she was talking about. Even that, like to have this sort of thing happening when, when people at the age of two, three, four, when they don't even know what any of this stuff is, even though I found it was fascinating. They said that they had done studies, I guess, by the age of one children have a pretty solid idea of what a male female in terms of sex. They pretty much got that. And then they have the gender expectations down somewhat after that. So that is pretty fascinating. But in terms of uh, sex and they're having all this confusion at three, four five years old, like, eh, I don't know. That's uh is that normal? Is that the result of some sort of toxic being influ uh, induced in the environment? Again, not saying that these people should be mistreated, anything of that nature. But I mean, hey, if they have definitive research where these type of results have been shown. Hmm. Uh, let's see. Words have come up so frequently in this book as well. She talked about when. If you have a child and they're not exposed to any sort of what they call conversion therapy, where they're exhibiting uh, any uh, evidence of having homosexual proclivities, anti-sexual conduct or beliefs, uh, not subjecting them to therapy or treatment of any sort, just leaving them alone. And then, you know, they clear up whatever confusion. Hey, I was born a male. I'm a male. They said that this is called desistance. And it's often used as an argument for discouraging social or hormonal transition in these children. It's also potentially a loaded term because in the field of criminology, desistance means the cessation of offensive or antisocial behavior. White people understand the importance of words. They don't want to criminalize, right, uh, being LGBTQ. 
gender dysphoria. They don't want to uh, send any signals that that is uh, there's something criminal or wrong about that. Like we should think about that and maybe use a different term. Right. And how we talk about all this and how frequently just con- contrasting that to how frequently black people are criminalized all the time for not doing anything, not being confused, just trying to get up, go to work, live their life. Black male goes out to sweep his porch and gets shot at. That just happened. Uh, let's see. Deborah Prevera, we talked about that in Killing the Black Body. Dorothy Roberts, how they dumped that and lots of other chemicals. That's why I said this is what happens to non-white people all over the world. It's not in vitro fertilization. It's Deprovera and other toxins. Talk about environmental poisons. It's toxins and chemicals to stop you from having children or make it so that your children will have all kinds of health problems and have an extremely reduced quality of life, much, uh, much less will and ability to replace white supremacy with justice. Uh, let's see. When she talked about Ben, who identified as so-called transgender, I wish he had included whether he was white or non-white. Uh, but Ben realized he was transgender. He had testosterone therapy and eventually had his breasts and uterus removed, found a male partner, identifies as gay, happily ever after. Whoopee. Uh, one, I would want to know, are, is this a white couple suspected racist? But two, I would want to know where the money came from to pay for this therapy. Because like they'll tell me all the time, well, we don't have money to do this. We don't have money for reparations. We don't have money, you know, to help black people in need in lots of different say, uh, situations. We just don't have money uh, to do that. Where did the money come from for Ben to get rid of his breasts and uterus? Like, I don't know how, how, how high a priority that is, and especially if that is the result of poisoning. Like, man, we could stop poisoning and then we don't have to spend all this money on people getting, you know, breasts and body parts removed because they won't be confused. Could be talking ignorant again. Let's see. See, now this is another one where they speak. It's no ambiguity at certain points. She says, endocrine disrupting chemicals for instance if a parent had occupational exposure to pesticides or phthalates and a higher risk of external genital uh, malformations in male newborns and research at the University of North Texas have explored the physiological pathways through which endocrine disrupting chemicals can influence sexual differentiation in humans one, I think just because we're in a system of white supremacy racism, this could all be deliberate. There's going to be some white sacrifice, but we know we piled up. We read uh, a terrible thing to waste. We already know that we're going to pile up the black people, non-white people in these areas with all these chemicals that will cause all these birth defects and sexual confusion and uh, hermaphrodites, intersex people and all the rest of it. We already know that there'll be some white sacrifice, but whatever. Uh, and just in the system of racism, white supremacy, there is a general disregard for the environment. Anyway, we read that in Urugu, very first book in the book club. Um, but like I said, the certainty that we already know there are certain chemicals that can cause these, whatever you want to call them, misbehaviors can cause, uh, these responses, sexual confusion, 
Uh, let's see. They even said, talk about studying every grain of sand with humans. There are still many unknowns about whether in utero exposure to certain chemicals can affect people's gender identity as they grow up. But this we do know certainty. Like I said, prenatal exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals seems to affect the way boys play. Now, that's a specific. I mean, that's. Not even the way children play boys specifically. And again, and they go and do the evaluation where young boys, more feminine behavior, playing with dolls, less likely to play with trucks, all the rest of like, really? Chemicals can do that? Like, wow. Again, in my view, at least just because we are in a system of white supremacy, that is something to think about. Could that be deliberate? I guess you tie that all the way with white genetic gen- uh, annihilation. Dr. Welsing's theory like, hey, black male is a threat. Let's effeminize them from birth. Let's see. Um, I'll get in my comment about her last little paragraph and then we can shove off to the second reading portion. She says. uh These forms of flux aren't inherently good or bad. No gender or no judgment, uh, but they may present a silver lining metaphor with such trends arguably on the rise. We as a society are gradually becoming more open minded, whatever that means, toward accepting people, however they present and identify in terms of gender. That is inarguably a good thing as we move toward creating a brave, new, inclusive, non-binary world. She said, inarguably, I do not agree with that. Uh, I think all of the confusion for gender in a system of white supremacy where you're using terms like inclusive, accepting, could give the impression that, hey, this is going to minimize racism, white supremacy. Not at all. People might get confused about what to do with their uh, genitals and all the rest of it. If Ben is classified as white, I am certain he is not confused about Negras. That right there stood out to me. And even just in terms of male and female, I think that's important. You do have a such a thing as a male, even with dogs, foxes. You do have a such a thing as a female people, rabbits. I think that's important. We're trying to establish, I thought, universal man universal woman that I think is important once we start marching down to road we don't really have males we don't really have females today I'm feeling a little female tomorrow I'm a little male Friday or you know by next week I might be feeling a little bit in between all of that I think aids the system of white supremacy racism when you are that confused about some of the basics on the planet not a whole lot else is going to make sense. We will push off. I don't think I missed any folks. I guess if you have commentary that you did not get to share, uh, just make notes uh, and we'll have time to share for the second audio segment. Uh, I have found this book fascinating. Uh, there were folks who were talking about it before we read it. So hopefully keep Dr. Welsing in mind. White genetic annihilation. Uh, we're picking up. This is Shauna Swan countdown so we're picking up on part two of the text 
Context of White Supremacy Part 2 The Sources and Timing of These Shifts 5. Windows of Vulnerability Timing is Everything Getting with the Program Despite being microscopic in size, sperm are mighty and resilient swimmers. These tadpole-like cells are able to recover from numerous forms of environmental assault, dodge and weave their way through various obstacles, hello cervical mucus, survive arduous treks through the male and the female reproductive tracts, and exert powerful genetic influences on the developing embryo. Yet, they're also surprisingly vulnerable, particularly during critical periods in a male's development. While damage to these delicate, hard-working animalcules, as Antony van Leeuwenhoek referred to them, upon first viewing them under a microscope in 1677, is possible at any point in a man's life, there are times when a male is especially vulnerable to losing or damaging sperm. These risky periods occur when the germ cells, the primordial cells that will mature into sperm, or the sperm themselves, are rapidly dividing, proliferating, or differentiating. The most sensitive time frame for reproductive tract development is the first trimester of pregnancy, when the genitals and the germ cells that will produce sperm are being formed, a phase called the reproductive programming window. The period between two and four months of age, often called mini-puberty because of the early postnatal surge of androgens, including testosterone, is also thought to be highly sensitive to outside influences. Interestingly, testosterone levels peak at the end of mini-puberty and then decline to minimal levels by six months. After that, they remain low until shortly before real puberty. The reproductive programming window is vital for sex differentiation in a developing fetus. A baby's biological sex is determined at conception, based on a specific pair of chromosomes that are present, XX for female, XY for male. Early in the first trimester of pregnancy, the embryo's genital tract looks the same whether the fetus is male or female. It's the same long ridge of tissue. The primordial gonads are just waiting for their operating instructions, the chemical messages that will tell them whether to evolve into male or female genitalia. Approximately eight weeks after conception, these uncommitted gonads begin to undergo big changes, gradually becoming male or female in structure and function, depending on hormone production. Internally, the baby's gonads will become ovaries or testicles. Externally, the fetus either develops a clitoris or the tissue elongates and becomes a penis, and the genital folds become either labia or scrotum. Which way the genitals develop, and how completely, depends on whether testosterone, and how much, is present during this time. In embryos with a Y chromosome, testosterone will be on duty and male typical sex organs will develop. In the absence of testosterone, female reproductive organs will form. Looked at another way, female is the default sex for human beings. It's the body's go-to biological sex unless certain hormones swing into action to masculinize the reproductive organs and the brain. 
To become male, the previously uncommitted genitals need to develop into testicles, the scrotum, the penis, and other male organs. Meanwhile, the testicles need to produce enough testosterone at the right time to complete the journey to physical masculinity. The amount of testosterone that's present in a male fetus after the second month of pregnancy is a major factor in determining the size of his penis and other parts of his genitals at birth. By the 22nd week of pregnancy, the testicles have formed in the abdomen and already contain immature sperm. Before long, they'll begin their gradual descent to the scrotum, reaching their ultimate destination late in pregnancy and, in some boys, even after birth. Any influences that change the production of key hormones during the development of these sexual organs will result in anatomical alterations that are profound and permanent. Such interruptions to the regularly scheduled program can lead to results such as low sperm counts, ambiguous genitalia, shorter anogenital distance, AGD, and genital birth defects such as undescended testicles. For all these parts to develop normally at this stage, a highly orchestrated cascade of events requires precisely the right dynamics at the right times. It's like a ballet. The corps de ballet has to come on stage at the right time to avoid bumping into the principal dancers. If the choreography, or its execution, is off, a principal dancer who leaps high into the air, expecting to be caught by a partner, may get hurt if he isn't there to catch her at the right time. The choreography during the development of an embryo's sexual organs is similarly complex. So many factors are involved that it's a wonder the process works at all. The Master Switches When it comes to sexual and reproductive development, hormones are like the great and powerful Oz behind the curtain, unseen but mighty. Hormones are master manipulators, given that they influence virtually every cell in the body, as well as various organs. The entire male reproductive system is dependent on key hormones to stimulate or regulate the activity of its cells and organs. The big ones for male reproduction are follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH, luteinizing hormone, LH, and testosterone. The affected organs include the testicles, the penis, the scrotum, the urethra, the tube that carries urine from the bladder to outside the body and expels sperm during orgasm, and various glands, including the prostate. Anything that interferes with the timing or quantity of these hormones during a critical period of development can disrupt the growth of sex organs and or their functionality. The female reproductive system is similarly dependent on hormones, most notably estrogens, progesterone, and testosterone. Yes, girls and women also produce the male hormone testosterone. It's made in their ovaries, while in males it's made by the testes, but in much smaller amounts than males do. While they're in the womb, both female and male fetuses are bathed in estrogens produced by the placenta. Once a baby girl is born, her ovaries basically serve as a warehouse for her eggs. She will also experience a mini-puberty that's marked by a hormone surge between two and four months of life, but levels of her sex hormones are much lower than those in boys. As real puberty kicks in, 
The pituitary gland stimulates the ovaries to start producing estrogen and progesterone, which in turn leads to the onset of menstruation and sexual maturation. As you've read, a girl is born with all the eggs she's ever going to have. Approximately 1 million to 2 million immature eggs nestled in fluid-filled sacs, follicles, in the ovaries. That may sound like an astonishing amount, and it's certainly more than a woman will ever need. But even that starting point represents a downward trajectory because female embryos may have had as many as 6 million or 7 million eggs while in utero. This is in stark contrast to the male reproductive experience. Sperm production occurs in multiple stages from early prenatal development and continues throughout adulthood, with a healthy man producing at least one billion sperm per month. A person's lifestyle habits, as well as certain chemicals that are ubiquitous in the modern world, can hijack the human hormonal system at different times in life. If it happens while an embryo is in the womb, the exposure can create a ticking time bomb that could explode into genital abnormalities, fertility problems, and other health disorders during the person's life. For example, if a woman is exposed to chemicals that block the action of androgens in the first trimester of pregnancy, during what's called the reproductive programming window, it can affect the reproductive development of the male fetus in numerous ways. One is to shorten the anogenital distance, AGD, the span from the anus to the base of the penis, which is significant because research has shown that a shorter AGD correlates with a lower sperm count and a smaller penis. Moreover, prenatal disruption of the male hormonal system can result in reduced testosterone levels and increase the risk that a baby boy will have undescended testicles, cryptorchidism, or a particular type of malformed penis, hypospadias, at birth. In parallel with declining sperm counts, the incidence of male genital abnormalities has been increasing in some Western countries. Studies from the UK show the incidence of undescended testicles nearly doubled from the 1950s to the early 2000s, while the rate increased more than fourfold from 1959 to 2001 in Denmark. Similarly, from 1990 to 1999, the occurrence of hypospadias, the misplaced opening of the urethra on the penis, increased in Sweden for no discernible reason, and its prevalence more than doubled between 1977 and 2005 in Denmark. As the boys who are born with these abnormalities grow into adulthood, the underlying hormonal havoc can lead to an increased risk of testicular cancer, infertility, and lower sperm count, a bequest most mothers would do anything to avoid giving to their sons. Samantha, an education specialist, and her husband have been grappling with these worries ever since their son, Ethan, was born in 2018. A 20-week ultrasound scan, a much-anticipated pregnancy milestone, found Ethan's kidneys to be larger than they should have been. After he was born, he had blood in his diaper when he was four days old from a raging kidney infection that required him to be hospitalized for 10 days so he could get intravenous antibiotics. A pediatric urologist told Ethan's parents that his testicles had not descended the way they were supposed to, 
which puts him at higher risk of fertility issues and testicular cancer down the road. A bombshell of upsetting news for any new parent. Fortunately, one testicle eventually descended naturally. When he was seven months old, Ethan needed surgery to bring down the other one, which was a centimeter off from where it was supposed to be. Neither side of the family had a history of cryptorchidism, and Samantha says she led a pristine lifestyle during the pregnancy, sticking with healthy, organic food and regularly vacuuming with a HEPA filter. So she hasn't been able to figure out why this happened to their son, even after doing extensive research on the subject. The only thing I can think of is, we live in the Central Valley of California, where the air is bad and we're surrounded by toxins and chemicals, says Samantha, who gave birth to Ethan when she was 24. It makes me really sad to think that he might not be able to have children if he decides he wants to, because of a small problem we got fixed when he was a baby. While in utero, female embryos developing reproductive organs aren't quite as vulnerable as those of male embryos are. But this doesn't mean trouble can't happen. Evidence suggests that some of the same chemicals that can affect male genital development in the womb can impact the timing of puberty in girls, leading most notably to earlier development of pubic hair, breasts, and the start of a girl's period. In addition, in utero exposure to some of these chemical culprits can have a negative impact on a female embryo's ovarian function leading to a hastened depletion of eggs when she's a grown woman and an earlier age of menopause. One way or another, what happens in the womb doesn't stay in the womb. These exposures can have long-lasting effects on the reproductive and sexual development of men and women alike. The Sensitive Male As far as gender equity goes, the womb doesn't provide a level playing field. This is true regarding potential threats to developing male and female embryos and to the very survival of the fetus. For starters, severe placental dysfunction is more common in pregnancies with a male fetus, which may partly explain the increased risk of early pregnancy loss of male fetuses. There's evidence that women's bodies spontaneously abort more male babies during stressful times. For example, the ratio of male-to-female live births declined in the three to five months after five different terrorist attacks around the world between 2001 and 2012. The extent to which male embryos are chromosomally vulnerable or susceptible to damage from environmental chemicals for other reasons remains to be determined. Another factor. Male fetuses grow faster in the womb which puts them at greater risk of being undernourished. Insufficient nourishment of the fetus can lead to low birth weight. Also, the risk of preterm birth, being born early, is higher for baby boys. The problem is, male babies that are born at low body weight and or prematurely are less likely to survive than female babies born at the same weight or weak. No innocence in the womb. The womb, of course, is the uterus, and attached to its wall during pregnancy is the placenta. This vital yet temporary organ functions a bit like a life support system for the fetus, 
providing oxygen, hormones, and nutrients, and removing waste products from the fetus's blood. Yet, surprisingly, the placenta isn't as well understood as you might expect. For example, it was long believed that the placental barrier, a membrane that separates the expectant mother's circulation from the fetus's, was like a wall or a moat that protected the fetus from bacteria, chemicals, and other potential threats. This belief even informed some of the health recommendations that were given to pregnant women. In the 1940s and 1950s, pregnant women were often encouraged to smoke to calm their nerves or control weight gain, and champagne and wine were prescribed to treat morning sickness and help expectant mothers relax. These suggestions long ago went the way of the dinosaurs. Fortunately, our insight into how the placenta works has improved. We now know the placental barrier is far from impermeable, and nicotine, alcohol, and other toxic chemicals such as mercury, from consuming certain fish, can cross or damage it and harm the developing fetus. It's not just that an expectant mother is eating for two, Everything she swallows or inhales can potentially affect her baby. This was discovered the tragic way after diethylstilbestrol, DES, a synthetic form of estrogen, was prescribed to pregnant women between 1947 and 1971 to prevent miscarriage and other pregnancy complications. Later, it was discovered that the adolescent daughters of women who took DES during pregnancy had an increased risk of a rare vaginal and cervical cancer that had never before been seen in young women. They also had higher rates of fertility problems, miscarriage, premature delivery, and ectopic, or tubal, pregnancy, which isn't a viable pregnancy and can be life-threatening to the mother. Long recognized as an endocrine-disrupting chemical, DES has not been prescribed for use during pregnancy since 1971. Identifying windows of opportunity for detrimental influences on reproductive development is difficult, especially in humans. It's considerably easier in laboratory animals. For example, once it became clear that prenatal exposure to certain environmental chemicals, especially those that can lower testosterone, affects how the genital tract develops, Scientists could intentionally vary when a pregnant animal was exposed to these chemicals to see how the timing affected the development of male genitals. In rats, researchers found that if an expectant mother is exposed to phthalates, endocrine-disrupting chemicals found in our food, plastics, and other everyday products, 18 to 21 days after mating, her male pup's testosterone levels will decrease and disruptions to normal male genital development will ensue. When these changes were recognized, they were considered so important that they were given a special name, phthalate syndrome. But this is where things get tricky. If the phthalate exposure occurs only before day 18 or only after day 21, the syndrome doesn't occur. So these chemicals have a relatively narrow window of opportunity to do their damage in the womb. Because it would be ethically unacceptable to conduct a study in which women are intentionally exposed to potentially harmful chemicals during pregnancy, 
We have had to take a different approach to try to ID the sensitive window for phthalate exposure during pregnancy in humans. In studies my colleagues and I conducted between 1999 and 2009, we examined the effects of a pregnant woman's incidental exposure to phthalates on the reproductive development of her male offspring. We did this by measuring levels of these chemicals in the expectant mother's urine during various stages of her pregnancy. When we looked for the phthalate syndrome and the programming window for the development of male genitalia, we found that it occurred in the second half of the first trimester, specifically during weeks 8 to 12 of pregnancy. When we examined these boys after birth, we found that the anogenital distance was shorter and the penis was smaller than expected for a boy of his size whose mother had lower exposure to certain phthalates. Remember, at the same time that testosterone is causing the penis to form in a male embryo, the predominantly male hormone is increasing the length of the male AGD. If not enough testosterone is present during this key time period, a baby boy might end up being born with a shorter AGD, a smaller penis, and testicles that are less completely descended, as my research team first revealed in 2005. Guys are right. Size matters when it comes to their genitals, just not in the way they think it does. In terms of fertility, the length of the AGD is more significant because a shorter AGD is linked with a shorter penis size and a lower sperm count. After my research was published, I was deluged with emails from men asking if their AGD was long enough, and from women who were worried about whether their use of phthalate-containing cosmetics during pregnancy could have affected their son's AGD or sexual development. I tried to be helpful, but it's difficult to draw a casual connection between reproductive development and a particular culprit in any one instance, especially in retrospect. In this case, hindsight isn't 2020. The AGD is such an important marker of reproductive health and endocrine disruption that it should probably be measured in every infant. But it still isn't among humans, outside of the research realm. I think of AGD as a bit like Janus, the ancient Roman god of beginnings and transitions, who is depicted with two faces, one looking to the future and one to the past. The length of a baby's AGD can tell us what chemical influences the fetus was exposed to in the womb, as well as what the future holds for that person's reproductive health and fertility. Thus, the AGD offers a rearview mirror perspective and a forecast of the person's future health. Yet it continues to amaze me that no one pays attention to the AGD. Admittedly, it's an awkward subject to talk about in polite company. Few adults are familiar with the phrase or the acronym, though kids use various slang terms, such as gooch or taint, to refer to anogenital distance but they have little appreciation of how significant its length is. By any name, the AGD is the body part that differs most in size between the sexes. It's usually 50 to 100% longer in males than females, even after adjusting for relative body size. In women, the AGD represents the distance from the center of the anus to the top of the clitoris, and it means something for girls, too. 
If a female embryo is exposed to too much testosterone in utero, which can happen if the mother has polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, she will be born with a longer-than-usual AGD for her sex. Put another way, AGD can be viewed as a biological marker of prenatal androgen activity, and given the association between a longer AGD and PCOS in girls, it appears that PCOS may originate in the womb. Exposure to certain environmental chemicals can also have androgenic effects in the body, although these are rare compared to the number of chemicals that lower androgen. Research has found that liquid waste products from pulp and paper mills demonstrate androgenic activity, often of sufficient potency to masculinize and or sex-reverse female fish, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. In a science fiction-like feat, many species of fish have the capacity to change their gonads and secondary sex characteristics, such as pigment or body shape, during adulthood. This doesn't happen naturally or randomly, but in response to environmental stimuli, such as changes in water temperature affecting wildlife, or the presence of pharmaceuticals that can alter hormone levels. More on that in Chapter 9. The Long and the Short of Exposures As you've seen, changes to the developing fetus's reproductive system can literally last a lifetime. For example, a decrease in the number of male germ cells that occurs as a result of mom's or dad's smoking can affect their son's semen quality as an adult. By contrast, if the chemical exposure occurs later in life, the changes are reversible. A grown man who smokes cigarettes typically experiences a 15% decline in his sperm count, an effect that can be reversed if he quits the habit. However, if an expectant mother smokes during pregnancy, her grown son may experience a fairly dramatic decrease in his sperm count, up to 40%, that is irreversible. It's not only chemicals that can have negative effects. New research suggests that if an expectant mother experiences significant life stress, such as job loss, divorce, or the death or illness of a loved one, Early in a pregnancy with a male fetus, her son is at increased risk for having reduced sperm count, fewer progressively modal sperm, and lower testosterone levels at age 20. Scientists use the terms organizational effects and activational effects to distinguish between these types of influences. Organizational effects occur early in an individual's lifetime and induce permanent alterations to the structure and function of cells, tissues, and organs. By contrast, activational effects are usually rapidly occurring but transitory influences that happen during adulthood. Sounds simple enough, right? Well, complicating matters... Some of the same sex hormones and endocrine-disrupting chemicals can have either organizational or activational effects on embryos, fetuses, children, or adults, depending on when the exposure occurs. Intuitively, it might seem as though only high doses of chemicals are likely to be problematic. But the reality is... Embryos are sensitive to low doses of environmental chemicals because they are small and undergoing high rates of cell division. 
We're talking about amounts that may be as small as a drop of baby oil in an Olympic-sized swimming pool, nearly minuscule. Nevertheless, if a pregnant woman, and hence her developing baby, is exposed to low doses of certain chemicals at sensitive periods in the embryo's reproductive and neural brain organization, the effects can be substantial and permanent. That's right. It's not only the reproductive organs that are affected. During periods of gestational development, when sex hormones exert organizational effects on the fetus's brain, a mother-to-be's exposure to endocrine-disrupting chemicals can affect her offspring's patterns of behavior that are considered traditionally male or female later in life. An interesting example in animals. In experiments with rats, researchers exposed male and female rats to a class of endocrine-disrupting chemicals called PCBs, both while they were in their mother's wombs and again when the rats were juveniles. The doses of PCBs were comparable to what humans experience in the real world, and the rats' development was followed as they matured in life. The researchers found that both prenatal and juvenile exposures to PCBs had significant effects on the rats' expressions of anxiety or aggression, as well as on their sexual or risk-taking behaviors. Interestingly, the juvenile exposures magnified the effects of prenatal exposures on anxiety-related behaviors. In other words, when the rats were exposed both times, the changes were more pronounced. An additive effect occurred. These effects are in line with what's called the two-hit model of disease development. In simple terms, when it comes to cancer, the model suggests that two hits to DNA are necessary to cause the disease. The first hit can stem from a genetic mutation, while a subsequent hit could come from environmental exposures and other non-hereditary factors. In terms of reproductive tract and brain development, it's now recognized that the first hit can happen in the womb, and a second or third hit can happen during a baby's early months, during puberty, or even during adulthood. The two-hit model is the developmental equivalent of adding insult to injury. Over time, toxic influences can have cumulative effects on reproductive development and function, leading to potential fertility problems or other health challenges long before a man or a woman is even contemplating having children. It's no secret that at puberty, kids often engage in risk-taking behaviors. The substances and chemicals they're exposed to could have lasting repercussions for their health because these can affect the development of a teen's brain and reproductive system. This is at least partly because puberty is a period of continued neural sensitivity to the organizing effects of hormones. During adolescence, for example, teens are particularly sensitive to the effects of alcohol and smoking, and research has revealed that early alcohol consumption, as early as sixth grade, can delay pubertal development. Developing breast tissue in girls is susceptible to the effects of certain phthalates, leading to increased breast density. Pubertal gynecomastia, breast formation in boys, has also been linked with higher blood levels of certain phthalates. As far as below-the-belt effects go, sperm are being produced during puberty and are susceptible to the adverse effects of many factors, 
including chemicals that can alter the young man's hormones or the complicated physiological processes that work together to produce the sperm. Now that you have a high-altitude view of the precarious periods in the life of a fetus, developmentally speaking, here's the surprising part. These windows of vulnerability aren't new. They've always been there. It's just that we didn't know until relatively recently the extent to which children's sexual and reproductive development could be affected in the womb by their parents' lifestyle practices and chemical exposures, or by their own exposures in early childhood and during adolescence. Just as timing means everything for conception, timing is paramount in a child's reproductive development. By way of example, consider this. A research group examined the number of eggs retrieved from women undergoing IVF and compared them to the amount of a non-phthalate plasticizer called DINCH in the women's urine. The researchers retrieved fewer eggs from women with higher levels of this chemical. What's interesting is the drop in the number of eggs that were recovered was stronger among women who were over age 37 compared to younger women, which suggests that as a woman and her partner age, their bodies may become less resilient to the effects of harmful chemicals. Another challenge to add to the list for older parents. So, with regard to reproductive development, it's not just about what you consume. It's about when you consume it. If you're a man who smokes before conception, that's a risky proposition. If you're a pregnant woman, the first trimester, in particular, is a delicate time for the fetus's genital development, and the fallout isn't limited to the possibility that your son will end up with fewer sperm or your daughter with higher androgen levels. The potential ripple effects for your future son's and daughter's sexual and reproductive futures are substantial, as you'll see in a later chapter. Context of White Supremacy. That will wrap us uh, for our reading for this week. Uh, we'll pick up next week uh, with chapter six. Hmm. Such an interesting book. I am sure. Uh, what? I'm just scanning ahead at the chapter for next week. Chapter six, up close and personal. Anyway, so glad we're reading the book. Context of white supremacy. Uh, the email is until justice at gmail.com. The number seven two zero. Seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. All righty. Uh, number six, Kester Semenya, a South African middle distance runner, Olympic gold medalist, has been fighting for the right to compete as a woman. This non-white victim was widely publicized. There have been a number of different cases like that. Uh, chapter five, number one, in parallel with declining sperm counts, the incidence of male genital abnormalities has been increasing in some Western countries. When she references Western countries, she is talking about white people, of course. This book provides a lot of support for Dr. Welsing's theory. I would agree. Number two. 
Anogenital distance, AGD, is such an important marker of reproductive health and endocrine disruption that should probably be measured in every infant, but still isn't. Interesting statistic. Unfortunately, these types of statistics can be manipulated to the detriment of non-white victims. This was brought out by Cal's guest, Dr. Vanessa Grubbs, and the GFR test of kidney function and renal transplantation. Uh, Dr. Vanessa Grubbs, black female, Shackley actually came to Seattle to discuss her book, Hundreds of Interlaced Fingers. This was back in 2017 before the Rona when you go around and touch everybody. So that's in the archives, her book talk, uh, where I did ask a question in the audience. And then we had her on the program a few weeks later. Then we had her back on last year during the beginning part of the Rona crisis uh, because they talked about the impact of uh, COVID-19 on kidneys. Anywho, number three. Scientists use terms, organizational effects, and activational effects to distinguish between these types of influences. Organizational effects occur early in an individual's lifetime and induce permanent alterations to the structure and function of cell tissues and organs. By contrast, activational effects are usually rapidly occurring, but transitory influences that happen during adulthood. Racist man and racist woman get you from the cradle to the grave. Absolutely. Uh, and again, just such detailed analysis of the different ways that these uh, harmful impacts uh, can play out uh, through human development. Just racists study everything to maintain their system of domination. Uh, let's see. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. I see retired firefighters hand. See any other uh, folks with a hand up. Uh, retired firefighter, do you have any commentary for our second round uh, or just listening? might be just listening assume he's just listening we'll check in again uh, before we skedaddle uh, let's see I'll get in some of my notes from I think I shared everything from chapter well I shared everything from chapter 4 so chapter 5 notes I took Exposure to certain environmental chemicals can also have androgenic effects in the body. Although the although these are rare compared to the number of chemicals that lower androgen, research has found that liquid waste products from pulp and paper mills demonstrate androgenic activity, often of sufficient sufficient potency to masculinize and or sex reverse female fish, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. In a science fiction-like feat, many species of fish have the capacity to change their gonads and secondary sex characteristics, such as pigment or body color. Now, 
I found all of that uh, fascinating for a number of reasons, uh, even just starting out with the basic that some of the uh, waste products, I guess, from these paper factories and what have you. And a lot of times that will just be whatever waste products they will not dispose of it in a correct manner, just dumping in, you know, whatever local water source uh, and then contaminate everyone that's there. That's the type of thing that I would look at again now. Where are these paper mills and factories located? I'm sure you have some white sacrifice, some white people where they end up being toxified because of all this. But is this another one where they strategically locate these facilities where non-white people live so that they suffer all these uh, health impacts? Uh, Let's see. And then the impact on sex behavior said that again, like I said, this is not about passing judgment. It's not certainly not about mistreating anyone. Never that. But I mean, just saying like, wow, it's, it seems like there's so many different uh, chemicals, poisons uh, that end up having some sort of impact on the genital and or sexual behavior of other species and people. And then for some reason, that's difficult. That's the language that she used that that's difficult to talk about or not discussed at all. Maybe that should be at the forefront, like I said, of the LGBTQ pride march and everything. Clean up the environment. Stop poisoning all of us and having all of us in a state of confusion about what's going on. Stop with all the poisons. Put that at the forefront of the. And who would be upset about that? Everybody could, you know, be supportive of that. Let's see. Oh, man. Sobriety would be best. Say that all the time. She says uh, a grown man who smokes cigarettes typically experiences a 15% decline in his sperm count. That is like substantial. And then you pair that with the programs that we've done talking about not just the impact of smoking on health and all of that, but with cigarettes and all of that being strategically marketed to black people, menthols and all the rest of it. Gotta make sure that we got black people smoking cigarettes. I mean, we just can't have, you know, life on planet earth unless we got black people smoking lots and lots of cigarettes. Like, Oh yes. Billboards are plenty and got that in every corner. So we don't have organic produce and all the rest of it. No, 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 no. Cigarettes and malt liquor, plenty of it. And even talking about how that is a before pregnancy, like, like I said, before conception, like even then, if you're smoking, consuming alcohol or what have you, I think uh, Judith and Layson talked about that in her book as well. You are what your grandparents ate. Generational impact on health. Let's see. If an expectant mother smokes, <clears throat> if an expectant mother smokes during pregnancy, her grown son may experience a fairly dramatic decrease in his sperm count up to 40% that is irreversible now I mean wow now allegedly smoking is supposed to be down um, across the board as they say where fewer people are smoking in general uh, which is a good thing but I mean wow a 40% decrease in your sperm count just if the mom is smoking cigarettes uh, while the child is still in utero I mean geez sobriety 
would be better. I mean, that's just one that we know about. Who knows all the other things that we don't know about and what have you. But I mean, no smoking. That should just be, hey, no smoking, no smoking, no smoking, racist man, racist woman want us to be smoking and doing all of these really unhealthy things and just finding new ways of putting poisons uh, into our bodies uh, to destroy not just our health, but the health of our offspring. Uh, And again, I don't think this information is like taught in schools. Like, I don't think when they talk about human development and all the rest of it, uh, science class, biology, whatever, I don't think they give out all this information about, man, if you smoke, not just messing up your health, but uh, if you want to have children and your children's health, like that would be a little bit more to think about in terms of do I want to uh, smoke cigarettes in addition to it's addictive and it's difficult to quit and everything else. Uh, let's see. Oh, I thought this was important too. She says, uh, researchers found that both prenatal and juvenile exposure to PCBs had significant effects on the rat's expressions of anxiety or aggression, as well as on their sexual or risk taking behaviors. Now, I mean, that is a broad spectrum of conduct that is impacted by these poisons. She continues. Uh, interestingly, the juvenile exposures magnified the effects of prenatal exposures on anxiety related behaviors. In other words, when the rats were exposed both times, the changes were more pronounced an additive effect occurred. Now I find that super important for people. Uh, if I get this, if I process the information correctly, so if you are exposed in utero to some of these chemicals or what have you, uh, and they can impact this whole range of behavior, your sexual behavior, risk taking behaviors. I think retired firefighter and others have talked about black children doing all these uh, like the stunt bikes and all the rest of it and drag racing and such. Uh, all of this saying that this is impacted by certain chemicals that you can be exposed to in utero and that they have a so-called additive impact if you are exposed again Uh, Once you are in adolescence or somewhere in childhood. Now, I mean, think about that for black children. You stuff black people in all these areas and what have you where they're close to toxic waste dumps and uh, the bus depot and the sanitation station and all the rest of it. So they're just chemicals on top of chemicals. And then in a house that's got lead paint from the 1950s. uh, So you get the exposure while you're in utero. Then you're a child, you're still in that environment, so you get all that exposure, and then you get all the uh, unhealthy food, you're in a so-called apartheid desert, and all the rest of it, so you don't get any healthy organic food, you get poisoned that way, or wherever else, you're at a school that's probably also in some poisoned uh, region, so you'll get lots of exposures, you know, while you're in Flint, Michigan, or wherever else, uh, to all these poisons and things, Um, that I could easily... C being another one influence everything that they say risk taking behaviors sexual activity anxiety aggression oh man that's exactly what they talked about with lead right increased aggression poor decision making and then come down and we got a Freddie Gray and blame it on you say well you were you know wilding being unsafe making bad choices that's what they'll say 
Let's see. They said, so much of that. What is that idiot? He says, sobriety would be best. She said, during adolescence, for example, teens are particularly sensitive to the effects of alcohol and smoking. And research has revealed that early alcohol consumption as early as sixth grade, that's like, like 11, I think, uh, as early as sixth grade can delay pubertal development. Developing breast tissue in girls is susceptible to the effects of certain phthalates, leading to increased breast density. Pubertal gynecomastia, breast formation in boys, has also been linked with higher blood levels of certain phthalates. And I'll stop there. I mean, I didn't even, again, I don't, is this like taught in like schools? Do they get the, I mean, Maybe they can say some of this is newer information. They haven't had enough time, you know, for the textbooks to be updated and for all this to be included in, you know, typical texts for general population. But I mean, if this information was in school, wow, maybe you, you know, could have lots of young people where it would just be absolutely we're not smoking. Like, I, you know, I'm pretty certain I want to be a dad at some point. Pretty sure, pretty certain that I might want to be a mom. Uh, at some point, you know, want to make sure that they're healthy, want to make sure that I'm healthy and all the rest of it. Like, no way. And in fact, get away from me if you got to do all that stuff. Like, oh, my God, like I'm sensitive. Adolescents are especially sensitive to alcohol and smoking and all the rest of it and can delay pubertal development. I had no idea. I mean, that would be one that would get my attention. Uh, if I'm a young person, you're telling me somewhere in middle school that consumption of alcohol can disrupt your, your development of your genitals. Like, whoa, no underage drinking. Like, man, let's, let's leave that campaign right now. Right. Fascinating. Um, again, I, I just keep hearing that over and over. <clears throat> White people are scientific. Uh, about racism, white supremacy, studying everything. That's what this book sounds like, studying everything. No stone left unturned. Uh, Some of this reminds me also of Harriet A. Washington's uh, A Terrible Thing to Waste, uh, where she, I mean, uh, environmental racism and all the toxins and everything, so a similar topic. topic. Uh, But she talked about those critical periods where if those toxins are there at certain moments, they can have really long-term impact. And like she was talking about where it's disrupting, whether the testicles fall, if you're going to have uh, a boy or disrupting the development of the penis uh, and all these other parts of reproductive development, super important, especially if the, some of these things happen. And then the result of that is not, Oh my gosh, look at what the chemicals and pollutants are doing to us. The result is, Oh, isn't this wonderful? We have someone who's intersex. We're non-binary. We need to change the census because I'm not a male or a female as opposed to Jesus Christ. Look at what these toxins are doing to us. We got to regulate these chemicals or ban them outright to get rid of as many of them as possible to stop this. Totally different way of processing information. Uh, we both basically just read chapter five, making sure I didn't miss anything else from chapter five. Uh, the ignoring of the anogenital uh, distance. 
I thought that was uh, significant as well. But her talking about how that's not really information that's widely used to kind of gauge health and to see, you know, has this child been exposed to any chemicals or what have you? Could there be any signs of uh, health problem? Because she talked about that, that anal genital distance, both a clue to has the child been exposed to any chemicals, potentially uh, potential problems. And then for future sperm count, getting back to fertility, that's the whole core of what this book is supposed to be about in the beginning. Uh, but again, some of this just also sounds like to me, not caring about children to begin with. Uh, let's see. Anything else? Make sure I miss out anything important. Uh, just, yeah, I can't emphasize. Oh, she talked about the male, uh, males in utero being a little bit more sensitive to some of the chemicals uh, and such uh, to potentially being harmed, impacted uh, if they're exposed in utero. Uh, I don't recall if that specifically was in Harriet A. Washington's medical apartheid, but regardless, uh, if you are thinking about having a child, like to the degree that you can, like, man, where do, and that's even, you know, before conception to be processing, where do we live? Is it possible for us to move if we're, you know, as I said, next to a sanitation processing center, we're next to the bus depot or whatever other types of contamination and noise. Is it possible that we can relocate to try to be in a healthier environment, minimize exposure to our child, you know, be damaged in ways that we don't won't even know about for 20, 50 years. Uh, let's see. Anything else? think that might have might have been most of my notes for chapter five uh, which is pretty much all we read for the second audio segment uh, I will double check uh, see if folks let's see our caller at one one five nine one one five nine do you have commentary to share greetings guys greetings callers and listeners um yeah this book is um Astonishingly constructive if you have um, the context of white supremacy in your brain computer. Um, I, I was uh, I didn't connect the the dots that um, the the <clears throat> the poison depositories known as liquor stores. Um, I thought like, all those poisons were just to keep us confused and not really serious about much, but now with this book, I'm like, oh wow, it, it's much much more than that. Um, the white racist man and racist woman have done a really well, good job at um, producing things like cigarettes and alcohol that not only um, retards us, but it sabotages our genetics and um, the, the potential genetics that we are putting in our um, offspring. And uh, I was thinking that as well when hearing this book that while we should definitely know this information, like in school, K-12 education, but, um, no, and, um, the whole, um, aspect of not being able to talk about, um, how these chemicals are altering, um, one, um, sexuality and, or sabotaging one's sexuality, it's very similar to the aspect of white supremacy that we're not, um, really, um, able to talk about race and white supremacy and, and, and most, environment is really stigmatized to discuss um, the, the true circumstances we are living in. So I think that's really interesting that it's, it's the same thing when I'm trying to talk about um, Area 8 
in regards to homosexuality. Yeah, I'm just uh, astonished that um, how well of a of a job racist men and racist women have done to sabotage every aspect of um, non-white people's existence. It's it's, it's really um, awesome white power, and I'll meet my line. No stone left unturned. Uh, I guess really quick, this can be one if you want to think on, since it is. Uh, we have about five minutes left or less. But if you either want to think on it for next week, or you can, in fact, you can think on it and maybe uh, marinate on it with something really tasty and plant-based uh, with Z's mom. Uh, in the book, she's saying that the research suggests that in terms of females who are looking to be moms, that there is a best by date for those eggs, best by 35. You mentioned Dr. Welsing. I said, hey, Dr. Welsing, unless my memory is bad, she said uh, no procreating for black people, uh, for females not until you're 30, males not until you're 35. If you take those two together, that would mean that your window for having children is 30 to 35, like... Ooh, that is narrow. Like who's even to say that you have found a husband by that time? Or if you do, that means you all narrow window uh, to get this thing together. Like uh, I'm just going to see what folks think about that, particularly females. Uh, but yeah, if you either have a thought now or if you want to mull it over and come back next week, maybe after you've had time to check in with Miss Z or Z's mom, sorry. Yeah, we heard the the suggestion. We'll definitely um, chime in next week. Grand. We'll all have time maybe to mull it over and give an email because that would be like, which, if anything, it would make the whole process of having a child a much more like really thought out as opposed to just, you know, whammo, randomly having a black child at 24 23 or what have you and doing the best you can but I mean that is very different that there is a five year window to do this uh, which would also limit the number of children that you could have I mean it's not like you can have I don't think most people could have eight children in a five year span right like uh, not that most people I know want to have eight children seven children or what have you but I mean it would it would substantially uh, mitigate being able to have children at all and then how many which Dr. Welsing said that as well no more than two years apart so I mean if you're totally taking Dr. Welsing that would probably mean max of two which is what she said also I mean it would be right on the money like you would have a super narrow window one child and it would have to be well planned out and lots of you know good fortune uh, where you could get those two children in that window but we'll process on that next week and uh, yeah as which sobriety would be best that's something to think about the prevalence of all of the uh, environmental poison centers in areas where black people are forced to live Ooh-wee. they don't have uh, in vitro fertilization centers they don't have areas where you can get information on the importance of healthy food and produce. At least most of the areas that I've seen where a lot of black people live, there may be some exceptions, but that's not the rule. I bet you have a much easier time getting access to a Newport cigarette 
and malt liquor of your choosing as opposed to I don't know organic Brussels sprouts organic avocados organic asparagus just to name a few uh, I say it at the end of every program maybe folks will recall this from now on sobriety would be best she said access to some of these poisons at certain periods can I think it was for moms smoking during pregnancy reduce your sperm count by 40% if you have a male child that is irreversible I think that's what she said yeah. sobriety would be best if you're going to be out and about uh, if you see someone being rowdy and hostile exit uh, you should be thinking that that person could be armed uh, that person may have an entire armed gang uh, if you did not leave your residence prepared to die and or kill exit immediately you can call enforcement officers and report whatever you need to do as you are vacating uh, if you're driving you are buckled up sober not on your mobile phone uh, we need all of our attention and we're trying to do the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no the likes of Kyle Rittenhouse that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim your brother you a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my condition mm -hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned <laughs>